what happens when a black guy, a white dude, and an Hispanic man happen to be pro wrestling marks? You get debates, roasting, and fun in Jeet Nation's newest podcast, Breaking Ring Rust. And it starts right now. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and Mark Soil H is back to Jake Nation's Breaking Ring Rust. I am your host, Rocket Mr. Magic. As always, my tag team partner, JT. And tonight we have our first special guest to Breaking Ring Rust. And I'll let JT do the introduction. Yeah, uh, we are going to be doing a special uh, a special part later on tonight, and for that, uh, brought in uh, one of my closest friends and another wrestling super fan, Mr. Matt Privet, and we'll go into a little bit later on while he is here, um, and so uh, we'll get into that. Matt, if you want to introduce yourself here, tell us a little bit about what? yourself, favorite wrestler, favorite finisher, a little bit about your fandom. Well, if I've got to uh, boil it down, I'm an old school Jim Crockett Mid Atlantic guy. I, like uh, like you, I grew up in Charlotte. Of course, uh, we you know that we spent a ton of time together. And uh, favorite wrestler of all time, I guess if I have to boil it down to one, it's got to be Flair. Um, but uh, we'll be talking about another one uh, in a few minutes. So, but I'll I'll save that one. And what's your all time favorite finisher? Oh my goodness. Um, um, submission finisher would probably be a sharpshooter or the, or the torture rack. Mm-hmm. Solid choices. And, and, and let me tell you, uh, Matt's not kidding with the sharpshooter. He will put a sharpshooter on anyone, anywhere. Um, church. My kids can attest. My church, kids can attest. Applebee's. Um, <laughs> like, literally, we have been like, uh, hanging out at church, like just around, and he if he sees somebody's two legs, he will grab them and slap them in a sharpshooter. And uh, there, there's, there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. I, yeah. I've thrown a couple of sharpshooters on yeah. people at work. Yeah. Uh, why why you wouldn't you do that? church? But yeah. I have thrown quite a number of super kicks or dry, and drop kicks at church, but yeah. uh, never, never any sharpshooters. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think my favorite was, uh, do you remember the time you broke your bed with the power bomb? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 Many, yeah. many, many things broken and in, in matches between you and I. Yeah. So just a little backstory here. Matt and I met at church on an event where we were going to Taco Bell. Was this a... Uh... This is in South uh, North Carolina, you know, yeah. how we reached the Mexicans type of outreach. No, it was just like a, we were in the same Sunday school class and our Sunday school teacher who is now a, a preacher in Charlotte was like, hey, we're going to get together Saturday night. And we're going to hang out. And the first thing we're going to do is go to Taco Bell. And uh, that was where we met. And a few months later, we found out we actually had wrestling in common and uh like the f- like one of the first things we ever did was we wrestled each other at like a discipleship weekend and then a few months later we wrestled again and i was like hey it's fun let's keep doing this and uh 
from then on, if there was like a pay-per-view or a Clash of Champions or Saturday Wrestling, you know, Wrestling Superstars, Worldwide Wrestling, we were pretty much hanging out watching it, you know. Um, And uh, then we went on to work for the church and worked in youth ministry. And there were a lot of students who were prey to figure fours and sharpshooters and Oh, see, see, you know, you're not supposed to put the young people in submission holds just to then prove the power of prayer and healing, you know. I... Well, they said a lot of prayers when they were caught in those moves, you know. I'm, I'm sure they called upon the name of the Lord many, many times. Yeah. A lot of them, were, a lot of them were, were asking for it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever worked with seventh graders, you know a lot of them were asking for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've definitely done that in there. Now speaking speaking of something that needed prayer, let's talk about Fastlane 2019. Well, since you stole my seg, uh, segue there, yes, um, Fastlane needed some prayer. Uh, if you were here for our last episode, we did some some predictions there on Fastlane. Um, I don't think the prediction was that I was going to suck as bad as it did, but nevertheless, you know, the WWE fails to not surprise us. Well, also on our, you know, what it reminded me of was like our last show, we were just kind of like, all right, let's just kind of throw some things together and see what sticks. And that's what I felt like they were doing last night. Like it, at one point I texted okay. Matt and I was like, are, are they making this show up as they go along? Because it really felt like that was what they were doing. It didn't flow like there was any type of plan or rhyme or reason in place. So, so I mean, first of all, let's go to the, the kickoff show. So they changed the kickoff show. And instead right. of the 8,512th match between Andrade and Rey Mysterio, uh, that gets changed. And now we have, for no apparent reason... Uh, two members in the New Day against Shinsuke and Rusev. Yeah. Which I had mixed feelings about because you and I have talked about before how an established team should not get beat by a thrown-together team. So the New Day going over was good, but at the same time, Shinsuke and Rusev are getting buried again, which those are two of their stars that should be on the rise and not getting buried on the kickoff show. Those two should not be on the kickoff show. I respect them enough to not have them on the kickoff. And especially not be getting buried on the kickoff show. By by the way, Matt, jump in here. Don't just let us dominate. Uh, I I agree completely. Um, I I'm a big I'm a big Rusev guy. I not so much on the Shinsuke wagon as much as uh, I was excited when he first came in, but um, I don't. I have no idea what they're doing, uh, and I don't think they do either. They've got their big ideas for WrestleMania, and everything else is just like you said. Just throw it, throw it together, and see what sticks. And not much is sticking right now. It, it seems to me just that they got Shinsuke because they had a strong feeling they were going to get AJ, and their whole payoff for Shinsuke was history with AJ and, and once that was over they were like okay what do we do with this guy we, you know we got they, we got the dream match that we wanted to be able to have between them two outside of Japan and they have no idea what to do with Shinsuke whatsoever well it, it, 
Wyshynski, yeah. and I said this from, I mean, here's the thing with Shinsuke, they had a guy that could still be over, even if he's not in the main event. But, you know, they've taken away everything the fans want to cheer. They took away the cool theme music. They took away the, you know, everything. And they took, they where they could get him back over if they took away the stupid new theme song, gave him back what worked, mm-hmm. let him just have some brutal matches. Um I mean, personally, I would love to see him and Aleister Black. I think that could be a great striking match. You know, if he, yeah, I, I mean, think I think Mike could work be a very style. entertaining. Match. Yeah, and, and Black mm-hmm. is willing to work strong style. Well, I think mm-hmm. more than anything, he needs a change of scenery, and I think that uh, if he's not one of the wrestlers moving. When they do the shakeup after WrestleMania, they're making a mistake, and he probably should go to Raw and just totally dominate some people for a while to get his heat back. Because right now he's just another guy, and he's got too much talent to be just another guy. But that's yeah. you could say that you could say that about a lot of people on the roster. Well, that's a great point, man. I mean, if you had the shakeup, let's you know, let's say Rollins goes over at Mania, um, Shinsuke could be a great opponent for someone like Seth Rollins. They could have some great matches together. And he's been on if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he's been on SmackDown since he's come up. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think he's moved at all. Yeah. So if he would come over to Raw, that gives him some fresh matches. Um and uh and it could be something really unique for him. Um so let's move on. Next, we had what kind of surprised me at being the curtain jerker was Miz and Shane in Miz's hometown, um, and then against the Usos. And uh, now there was one cool spot in the match, and that was when uh, Shane and one of the Usos, don't care which one, jumped off the top rope against each other at the same time. Are you even able to determine which one's which? It's not that I can't determine. It's that I don't care. You can't determine. It's okay. You can admit it. it. I, I, it's that I don't care. So here's, here's what's the running theme on this show. Uh, Magic Matt is a huge Uso fan because he trained with the Samoans. So he loves the Usos and thinks that despite the fact they only know two moves, that they're a great tag team. I think the Usos are overrated and they suck. So... <clears throat> they're 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 like a less talented version of the the young bucks. I mean, at least the young bucks make their two moves look cool. And I'm kind of I, I kind of lean your way on on the Usos. I guess I'm a little bit more uh, tempered in my criticism of them, but um, yeah, I, I'm 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 over them. I, yeah. I, I think that's safe to say. Here, here's my thing with the Usos. They've done. They've had two gimmicks. And both the gimmicks they've done have been the gimmicks that I like the least. One, they did the 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 island warrior gimmick, which I thought in that day and time was very dated and just didn't have a place in modern wrestling. I thought it was bad enough. It, it wasn't. It wasn't like the past it, as I it, it, as it, the it, island warrior gimmick. It was bad enough when we had the head shrinkers in the nineties. And now we've got 
these guys coming out and they're doing Samoan dances and stuff. It was to me as insulting when they had Samoa Joe doing the same thing in TNA. Uh, see, I, I disagree because especially when they came out and they were doing the haka, which they did it too much. They should have done it on at every entrance. But um, I mean, they were even doing it in, in NXT when they right. Went they, back they, down there. they did it too many times. They should have been saved for pay per view entrances. But you have to also remember during that time, you know, late you know, late early ten, you know, late early late two thousands, um, early two thousand tens the rugby starts to become more of a globally recognized sport. Um, the all blacks in New Zealand, you know, the, the Samoan rugby teams, you're starting to see people start to grasp this Island culture that is becoming, starting to become this worldwide phenomenon. So you had guys that are already embracing their culture. You had seen, you know, Rocky do it in movies. You've seen the other Samoans do it here and there simply expressing their culture. Was it overdone? Definitely. Insulting? That's that's a stretch there. De- definitely not insulting. I, I I I think it's just whenever Vince had a Samoan tag team, that was what he always went to, and that's, that's what to me is because three minute warning was nothing. He tried to make three minute warning like they were black, like 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 Eddie and like but Eddie what and did he eventually? Were, but what did he eventually go to? Well, he he, Ooh, made, he, he made Madison Ooh, superhero, and, and he turned Eddie into you know the Samoan you know was it pile driver bulldozer or something like that. But still, he goes right back to the wild Samoan. You know that's what he that's what he's always going to go back to. You know, um, and uh, you know, but that was my thing. So let's let's move on, or else we're never going to get past this. Um, but uh, um, no big Mandy but, Rose. but no, but but we didn't finish up. But obviously, oh. the Usos retain, and then to no one's surprise, in in the very definition of formulaic, uh, Shane turns on Miz and then uh, beats him up in front of his own daddy, and then attacks his dad. Well, see, set I, up their their WrestleMania match. That was oh my gosh, so shocking. Well, we knew there was a heel turn coming. I was hoping Miz was going to be the one turning because he's a better heel than a face, but we we knew they weren't going to stay together. But they, yeah, but they've been trying to turn Shane slowly heel since the the tournament in yeah the world the greatest yeah. whatever in the world Kuwait tournament. or wherever it was yeah and then you've got uh, and Miz they've been trying to turn babyface because and he is a better heel than he is a face but he's really been getting over in the past year or so and especially with Ms. and Mrs. uh people are really people starting watch to like that? yeah wow okay all i got to say about this is how much i hate the idea of shane mcmahon in a wrestlemania match for the fourth year in a row um I, i'm he's hard to watch in the ring uh, beyond the stunt work that is has been done too much that it's not special anymore. Yeah. And they are wasting. I, I mean, I'm how much time are they wasting? Yeah. Well, it, it it's, I think it was summed up yeah. best when he wrestled AJ styles, you know, my wife who's a big AJ styles fan is just like, why is the best wrestler in the company wrestling that old man? And they went, to, they went <laughs> close to 20 minutes and, AJ and it was way, too to, way too long. Yeah, and, and AJ Styles is supposed to be one of your, you know, your top 
echelon guys, and he's going 20 minutes in a competitive match with Shane McMahon. It's I'm I'm so sick of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, he goes. He's competitive with Undertaker, which I could see if Shane was the young Shane and this was the old Undertaker, but they're both old. They're the same age. And by the way, John Cena lost to Undertaker in less than four minutes. Yeah, also. yeah, Let's that was that, that was the very definition of a squash match. By but, the way, but did he? Because I've never seen him. Yeah, has anybody seen? There's a clear John Cena Funko Pop now. I have heard about that. Yes. Yeah, I've seen it. I don't think you have seen it because you yeah. I, I, okay, well, I've seen the thing. It, it literally looks like the Funko Pop box is empty. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. I wouldn't buy it, but that's great. Yeah. Um, Matt, do you collect Funko Pops? I can't say I do. Yeah. Uh, Magic is mad at me because I got the the WrestleMania 12 uh, Shawn Michaels one before he did. Yeah, I'm not a Funko Pop collector. There's a couple I'd like to have, and that's what I'd like to have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've got that one and, the of course, the Flair one that came in the new uh, 2K one, which that one is already selling for 100 bucks. Lord have mercy. Yeah. All right. So we move to Oscar. And Mandy Rose for the SmackDown Live Women's Championship. Yeah, and uh, that one had an interesting ending where Sonya's uh, attempt to help Mandy cheat backfires in a unique way. But we called that last week. When we said that, you know, but I, I, I never have actually seen, hey, I'm going to look under the ring and me pulling up the ring apron is going to cause you to trip on the ring apron. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, um, although when they did the replay of that kick, the spinning heel kick. Oh, yeah, she got her. That looked stiff. Man. Yeah, man, uh, Manny, Manny caught a, big, a good bit of that foot and, and you know took the bump very well. But she definitely, Oscar definitely got her with that spinning kick. Yeah, I think she might caught some heat backstage because they, they're putting a lot of money on Mandy's pretty face. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, they're not banking money on Mandy's talent, so. That's that's a good point. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how much heat she can take from that because you could tell it was a pulled kick. Um, I don't know how much you blame Oscar. Well, she rattled her pretty good. You can tell in slow motion. I, this is how I know Mandy Rose is pretty because even when she comes out, even my wife is like, wow, this Mandy Rose, she's so pretty. That's, right. that, that's how I know when somebody's pretty, when my wife's like, wow, she's pretty. She's all right. Mm. She's not ugly. She's, mm. I don't think she's like drop dead gorgeous or anything like that. But I just like Karen Graves go on about her. It's funny. Oh, God. Please, no. Corey Graves. Um, so, yes, she took, she took a definite semi-stiff kick to the face. Mm-hmm. Did, did the, the bump. But, yeah, the, the, the schmoz at the end. So maybe they're leading to Mandy and Sonya at WrestleMania, and I really don't want to see that because maybe it's because I know how close they are in real life. Uh, I I think, like we said last week, that um, Mandy gets another shot at WrestleMania, and then she loses again, and then that there's a split because of Sonya again. There's a split there. Then they go into a feud. I, I see. I don't like it when they split up real life best friends because then it ends up causing problem in real people's life. 
Um, they did it. They're, pro- they're supposed to be professionals. The, yeah, I mean, they did it. With, they did it with Lexi and Nyan. It caused a problem. Um, I mean, Mandy and Sonia live together in real life. They're roommates. They travel together, and you know. Hey, hey these 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 current guys. They want to be. They want to be Sean and Hunter. They want to be Pillman and Austin. You know what? You're, if you're professional, your friendship should be able to take it. Although it does remind me of one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Have you ever seen the the clip of of Naya and and Lexi together after Lexi got her pig and Naya's eating? No. There's there's a clip where I try um, to avoid clips of. There's a there's a clip, and it was on the internet for a while where like Lexi had just gotten her her pig Larry Steven. She's sitting there and and they're in the car eating, and. And she says, Naya, what are you eating? She's like, a bacon cheeseburger. She's like, really, Naya? Bacon? Yeah, that, that will be my thing. Yeah, bacon. <laughs> but my, my daughter's obsessed with the pig, and now she wants a pig. Tell her good. She'll have pig for breakfast. It tastes mm-hmm. good. My, my, da- my daughter's a vegetarian, so. Oh, we need to lay hands and pray over her now. Yeah, I have I have a seven year old who's been a vegetarian since she was four. Well, you ain't been praying hard enough. Believe me, I've tried to get her to eat food, but meat. She just won't do it. And well, every, I'll still be like, "Hey, you want some of Daddy's bacon cheeseburger here?" And she's just, no. We'll have a moment of intercessory prayer after the show. Uh, okay, we we got three people here who who either are or have been involved in ministry at one point. I took her into Chick Fil A the other day. Okay. People know me there, all right? I'm ordering my large sweet tea, my waffle fries, and my eight-piece nugget. And the girl behind the counter says, sweetie, is there something wrong? And I look down, and she's holding her nose, and she says, it smells like meat in here. Oh, Lord, 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 Lord. That's the Lord's chicken. Yeah. So then... Then we go to, yeah, I know, tell me about it. So I'm like, I, I, I'm in ministry in this area. Stop it. You're embarrassing me. So anyway, so um, so then we have this horrible skit where Vince uh, has the new day in his office. Uh, and, and Vince, I mean, he looks great for his age. He doesn't look a day over 102. <laughs> That's cold. And he says... Um, we're making this a triple threat match night for the title. Your matches next go out there. They announce the world title match. Kofi comes out. Then somebody tells the announcer, no, this is a handicap match. The bar comes out and pretty much squash Kofi. Yeah, they beat this stuff out of him. They beat him yeah. down. And that white noise suplex combo thing they did. Now, in all fairness... I decided that was a great opportunity to take a bowel movement because I knew what was going to happen. Well, I think what they're trying to do there, and uh, I guess WrestleMania will bear me out, is they're trying to create kind of, kind of a Daniel Bryan type of WrestleMania 30 thing with Kofi. Ironically, against Daniel Bryan. Yeah, and I and I think I think that Kofi is going to go over at WrestleMania. I don't I don't think he's quite as over as Daniel Bryan was then. Not, well, I know he's not, but he is over, and I think. It's something I'd like to see, and I, I think they're trying to create this and this authority's out to screw him, and he's fighting all these odds. And whether or not it works in the end, I don't know. But um, 
I, I think it could have been executed better last night. Last night, I guess <laughs> I, I see what they're trying to do, but I, I, it lacked something in how it came off. Here's something about the authority. Okay, until last night, Shane was a face. Right. Now he's, he's a heel. A now he's a heel. Vince and Stephanie were heels until like a week ago or two weeks ago. Hunter was a heel. Now apparently he's a baby face because he's defending Flair's honor. Right. But they're well, all in the authority together. And, and, and Stephanie really wasn't like a heel because she was doing, she was trying to tween it. She was doing stuff the crowd was popping for. She was making decisions they were booing. Like she was trying to toe the line. And when, and Vince was their true heel in this story coming out and having Owens replace him where they were, where Steph Hunter and uh, Shane were all out, you know, congratulating Kofi there for the whole signing of the contract and everything. So you, it's tough to try to build him up as this baby face. He's got to overcome the authority when only one quarter of the authority is even against him. He's not overcoming all these insurmountable odds. He's only invinces in like he's been around the but, entire time of the story. You but know, if you look at everything Stephanie's doing on raw, she's obviously a heel. Yeah, but it doesn't, but she's not a heel against him. She's been running the women's division, you know, she was out there to congratulate him. She was being a baby face in this storyline. But well, I think that, that just goes to the, your lack of coherent storytelling right now. That's right? my point. There's a, there's a lack of coherent storytelling within the authority. Like there's no, the authority should be said, what are they doing? Are they heels or they faces? Like you can't just flip flop every two weeks. Right. Yeah. We're, we're booing them until they're holding a birthday party for Ric Flair. We're booing them until Stephanie's responsible for the latest women's evolution or whatever. We're, be- we're booing them until Hunter's going to defend Flair's honor at WrestleMania against Batista. Right. And and, which, and real quick. Which, they should be. I mean, if they if they were smart, they'd be making Hunter the, the heel here and Batista the, the face coming off of his popularity, Batista's, with this whole Marvel franchise. And I don't I don't get it. Especially since, uh, as, G, as JT said last week, um, or two weeks ago, especially since, last week, you know, yeah. Uh, the character tracks that he plays well, he's a good guy. So, yeah. why would you make the guy who plays a good guy the heel wearing his stupid blue nose ring? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> magic is really upset about this blue nose ring, by the way. Is I can't take someone seriously when they come out there, they try to be intimidating, and they've got this. Blue nose ring that they got off the shelf at Claire's. Like, come on, you're a grown man, Dave. You're like 42 years old. He's older than that. No, I, mean, I think he's close. He's, he's close like to 50 40. now, I think. But, but your, your point, your point is to good when I feel the same way about the yeah. nose ring. I was like, what in the world is that? And uh, but I, I guess I'm saying that about a lot of things in WWE right now. What was the funny the thing was it I didn't even notice the nose ring really until um, by the way, Batista just turned 50. Um, I didn't even notice the nose ring before, uh, really before Matt saying anything. I noticed he had a nose ring. I didn't notice that it was blue until Magic was like, that blue nose ring, where did you get it? I was like, pretty sure Hot Topic. That's going to be my guess. Hopefully Hot Topic. He's a 50-year-old man. Shouldn't be shopping at Claire's anyway. All right, so from there, we have your boys. The revival, 
in the triple threat tag team title match against Glorious Gable and Alistair Black and Ricochet. I'll say something here. I'm glad the Revival finally won a match. Um, right. I guess it was <laughs> their first televised win since winning the titles. And uh, I am a huge Revival fan. And I, I think that they're probably my favorite tag team in the past 25 years. Um, probably. And, um, but uh, I know how WWE feels about tag team wrestling. Uh, but I was glad to see them win. And uh, I hope that they get a, a lengthy reign and get to show some of what they showed in NXT because they haven't been given that opportunity yet. Very true. Um, thanks to JT's constant harping on them, I have uh, grown in my appreciation of the revival. Uh, I love tag team wrestling, so having a quality tag team there is great despite, unfortunately, Vince's penchant for ignoring it or dismissing it. Uh, I'm glad that the revival did get the win. And and, really and they're a real tag team, and the match went pretty much the way it should. The rival stealing the win, but they won. Um, and they and they and they should steal the win. They're heels. Let them steal the yeah, win. Exactly. And but they won. They got to get their heat back from the past few weeks. Um, and Gable showed off that incredible strength we know he has. Um, yeah, everybody got their stuff, and it was it was a well how, well put how, together match. How Gable does that deadlift German, as small as he is, I have no idea. Leg and back strength, my friend. Yeah, but he is he is such a small guy to be doing that move. He's, yeah, he's incredibly strong. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's amazing such a watching small guy work. to be pulling it off. Yeah, because he's pulling it off on guys that are like four or five inches bigger than he is. That's what I'm saying. If he was doing it to guys his size, it wouldn't it would not impress me. But I've seen him do it to. You know, like Seamus and Cesaro and guys like that. Right. Uh, and he's not a big guy. If they moved him to a five live, I, yeah, I'd be like, oh, okay. You know. Yeah, they, they tower over him and yeah. yeah, he throws him around like, like it's nothing. Right. So if he were to, so, you know, at the same time, um, you know, I was glad to see the revival get the win. I'd like to see them increase a focus on uh, some tag team wrestling and I'd like to see them um, decide where Ricochet and Aleister Black are going to be and uh, put them into some type of focus there rather than going okay you're going to be on every show and sometimes you're going to be single sometimes you're going to be tag teams and I'm not sure they I'm not sure they know what they're going to do with them yet I mean they they're still coming out with NXT uh, Cryon when they're introduced. True. And they're on it. Well, they're show. still performing T two because they're supposed to be in the Dusty Classic. That's true, and and I you know I I don't understand why they have been introduced when they have been introduced. I I, I like all of those guys. Um, they all have a lot of talent. I just introducing them a month and a half before WrestleMania. It's more of an after WrestleMania Raw and SmackDown type thing. And I'm, I'm left wondering what the point is right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I could see introducing them after WrestleMania. I could see bringing them out for the Andre Battle Royal. Yeah. Um, you know, but the way they debuted, especially when you bring out two guys that 
are holding belts in NXT. Yeah, Ciampa and Gargano, yeah. Yeah, and Ciampa, by the way, did have his neck surgery in the past. I week. saw that, yep. Yeah. Right. And there were some pretty uh, powerful photos, shall we say, of that surgery that were on uh, WWE.com of them uh, fusing his, his neck together. So so what was up with Dawson, like, uh, stroking his partner's hair after the match? I was like, oh, okay. You know, I, it was a very tender moment at the end of the match. I can't say. I, I must have missed that one. Oh, uh, just, I, heel, just an old heel heat thing. I mean, it's no different than when the Mennonites would, you know, get scared and one of them would, you know, go over and hug the other one's waist. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. All right, so yeah. then next match we have uh, part of the changes in this card. Samoa Joe, who had recently captured the U.S. championship from R-Truth, uh, defending against Mysterio, R-Truth, and Andrade, with and, Samoa and, Joe retaining. And, well, and this was a spot fest car crash. Yeah, well, it's a car uh, crash because R-Truth is impersonating John Cena, who he's never seen in real life. Yeah, and 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 John Cena, who for a long time he didn't like in real life. Yeah, and and, you know, and he had legit heat with in real life. Yeah, so, and he's also older than and yeah. John Cena's old. I mean, uh, Archer is older than Mister McMahon, from what I understand. Yeah, probably. Is it, he's one hundred and three. I yeah. think so. He's one hundred seventy-five. <laughs> okay, one hundred seventy-five um, years old. Same old, same age Joe Lewis was when he fought uh, Rocky Mountain. <laughs> no, that's good. We make, of, we make a lot of these references, Matt. Uh, we wasted almost an entire episode doing Coming to America references. Well, his uh, can't call, you can't call that a waste. Um, this, this match uh, definitely could have been... And I and I hate to say it because I, lo- I love Samoa Joe and Ray um, and Andrade's a great worker, but to me this match was just thrown together. It, it felt like filler. Uh, I was I didn't care who won. I didn't. Think, I knew they were going to take the belt off of Joe when they just put it on him. And truth, I thought, I thought Truth should have done the job because as of now there have been two matches and Joe still has a pit beat the former champion. Because one time he pinned Andrade, now he put Ray out with Sleeper. Right. But he still hasn't beaten Truth. So it, well, I'm afraid they're going to have Truth and him in a solo match at Meaning, which I don't want to see because I don't think that match is going to look good. I, I never well, want to see Truth wrestle. For what it's worth, uh, I think that they're, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, they're going to be facing each other one on one on SmackDown. Super kick! Express again. This should have been where they're getting the crap kicked out of them. Uh, you know, uh, they're about to put away Sasha. She makes the blind tag. Bailey runs them into each other, rolls up one of them, and pins them. And that should have been the finish. It should have been. It should have been. Uh, this match did nothing for me. Um, and that that is exactly how it should have ended. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. But uh, and then and then the the stuff after the match, 
who knows where they're going with that. So, well, I think yeah. they're going with Beth and Natty against the, the, the twin towers, as it were. A way to probably should call them that, but what's wrong with changing the name? Is it the job so broke? Uh, when the Rock and Roll Express, after the Midnight Express left Mid South, uh, and the Midnight and the Rock and Roll Express were feuding with Doctor Death and Ted DiBiase, and he said if wrestling was real, Doctor Death would have beat both of them by himself. And if wrestling was real, Nia is going to beat both of them by herself. Yeah, Doctor Death was no joke. Yeah, I mean, I don't Nia. I can't put her in that same category because two women um, being quick enough, taking the legs out could beat her now wrestling the way they working the way they worked that match no they wouldn't have been able to beat her they wouldn't have been able to stun her let alone beat her but you know like you said said, they dominated way too much on a team that outweighed them by like 300 pounds yeah it was it was um and it didn't make here's the thing wwe should always make naya look like a monster yeah she is one and they did not do that. I mean, if you're going to make one of them look weak, you can make Tamina look weak and have Nia come in and be the big heater. So it makes and they sense. Made- 50 50 with, with the results so that no one is more special. And, huh. and, and Nia is not special anymore because of that. I, I, you know, a lot of people are down on her. I'm not. I, I think that. She has, I think her different look is to her advantage in the women's division. And I think that it's it's a waste of an opportunity to, to have that monster heel. Yeah. Well, the, should, when she loses, it should be on a fluke. And it, yeah, it exactly. She hasn't sold for the match until the very end. And it's it's a waste. Yeah, if there's – when you have monster heels, whether it's a Naya or a Yokozuna or a Vader or, you know, an Andre or somebody like that, the only way they should be losing someone that's a smaller opponent is a, a fluke. Something backfires. They get lucky, whatever you want to say. But it shouldn't just be a straight up and down, this tiny little person beats them, you know. Right. And so that – did nothing, and then the next time they want to go, oh, Nia is a monster. Well, Bailey beat her straight up, one on one, basically. Yeah. So why be a right? But then they just hang out there, and with just no, it was just flat putting Mustafa Ali out there. It was just flat. And it was flat. There was no response. There was no reason for it. I mean, they kept trying to say, well, you know, a a couple months ago, he, but that was a couple months ago. And nobody cared anymore. You know, there was no, and, you know, it, it, uh, you know, I mean, unless they were like, you know, hey, here's our third entrance. And, Unless, like, Hogan or somebody was going to come down the aisle, you know. I don't think they would have popped for him either. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I thought about that halfway through when I started, but I already started the analogy, so. <laughs> yeah, I, like like uh, like Matt said, every work was good, but no, no one cared and there were no real stakes to this match. Yeah, now, I mean, the 450 on the apron, that was really cool, you know. Oh, yeah. And, 
and 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 it was really smart. Always almost killed himself. His face was that close to the announcer's table. Yeah, that yeah. that was a really scary spot. Um, yeah. And when he jumped up and started celebrating, I found he. I was like, I think he's just celebrating because he didn't kill himself. Um, the four fifty on the apron. It was really. It was one of those little things, but it was really smart the way Ali stopped. He starts selling his ribs, and that gave Daniel Bryan time to roll to the other side of the ring. Right. Like that was a really smart thing. And you can pick out little things in there, but at the same time, you know, there's two theories on on how you grade a match. One is how good technically was, and the other was how did the crowd react to it. And there were some fine technical things in there. Um, the finish came off beautifully. Like, Brian hit that yeah. knee uh, spectacularly. However, the crowd just wasn't into it. And it's hard to enjoy a match when the crowd is just like you know, can I pee in your popcorn? Yeah, the, the match would be more enjoyable if you watched on mute than having the audio on. Yeah. Right. All right, so then we got two more matches left. One yes. we've got, so yes. then we have what was the real main event of the evening. Uh, Becky Lynch and Flair. Right, and you've got, uh, and so I will say this, they did really the only thing they could do to get out of this match. Because you have Becky starting the match on a crutch. Um, now, obviously, Becky has to win, but her and Charlotte are supposed to be the two most evenly matched women in the women's division. So how is she going to win when she, when we know we're told her ribs are hurt? She's got a brace on her arm. Her whole body's broken. And she's walking on a crutch. Um, and so they did. Um, you know, Charlotte was great as a heel taunting her, uh, using cheap tactics, going after her injured leg, um, staying out of striking distance. Um, the announcer sold really well, you know, how even when Becky was hitting her, she can't plant her foot, so she can't right. strike out of it. Properly. Obviously, she has to do something, and they did it perfectly well. Charlotte gets the figure four on before she can get the figure eight. Becky doesn't look like she's really tapping, but Rhonda comes in and causes the DQ. But causes Becky to win. Becky doesn't look like she's about to tap. Charlotte doesn't have the full figure eight on. We don't know if Becky's going to get to the ropes. We don't know if Becky's going to tap. Right. What's going to happen. But that was really the only way they could get out because there's no way it's going to be believable for Becky and Charlotte, who are supposed to be so even for Becky to win in this situation. Right. It's not she as banged up as she is. Right. And of course, we're supposed to try to put more heel heat on Rhonda, who's just not convincing me. But that's a whole other topic, right? Her her promos are just so horrible lately, and her "I'm bigger than the business" things she's saying outside of the ring are just grating. On the, woman, the woman put over Gino's. Come on, she has no credibility. To about Gino's stakes? Yeah. Okay, if she didn't put over Pats, then she's she's dead to me. Yeah, she put over Genos. She's dead to me. Yeah, Matt's never had Pats or Genos, so we have to hook him up with that sometime. Sometime. Yeah. Then we have the. I'm not going to call it the last reunion because in another couple months there will be another Shield reunion because they keep moving merch. So we have. 
the well, shield. Hey, they kept reminding us that Dean Ambrose didn't sign his new contract. Right. Yeah, they keep telling us about that, but we're not supposed to believe that 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 they're working us there either. Um, so we have the Shield defeating Baron Corbin, Drew McIntyre, and the Almighty Bobby Lashley. So um, this match was so compelling that I gathered up all the trash in my house and took it out to the dumpster during that. And unfortunately, when I came back, it was still on. Uh, I know why. You- Missed, didn't miss the entire match because you forgot to stop and empty that bathroom trash. And your wife was like, what are you doing? You always forget to empty the bathroom trash. If you had taken the bathroom trash out with the rest of it, you'd have missed the entire match and you'd have felt better about yourself. So, and, you know, and then, of course, you get the, uh, and that match, which was just, wasn't really even a match. Um, I think Matt actually uh, about two thirds of the way through turned it off. Yeah, I, I tapped out. Yeah, I, that's why I'm not adding much here. I Mm-mm. I was done. It it was just a train wreck. It, they fought all over the arena. There wasn't much to the match. Well, there's no, there's no even, there's not even any chemistry. Like the, you know, Lashley does not work well with. Any of the guys yeah. from the Shield, um, he he was starting to get into a flow with Balor, and now this this whole semi alliance with Corbin and McIntyre kind of just interrupts that flow because um, they were telling a good story with him and Leo and Balor. Well, and they're the, supposed to have title match tonight. We're recording the show, so. right? But I'm saying the the whole involvement, him is his involvement in this stupid little faction they've got going on with Corbin, distracts too much from his primary story, which was the good story that they were telling. Mm-hmm. Like, it, make up your mind on what story you're telling and who's going to be involved in it. Having him play doing double duty is just stupid. And so then you've got, um, and so of course. Uh, they pinned Corbin, not a shock. Um, yeah, what a surprise. man on the totem pole after the shield bomb, as they kept calling it, which oh, I... Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's a triple power bomb. Like, yeah. something special that the shield does for it than anybody else does. Yeah, and uh, and I'm and I'm never really understood why that's supposed to be that much more powerful than a regular power bomb because he's not up on two people's shoulders; he's up on one person's shoulders. But there's two extra arms throwing them down, man. You got a lunatic on one side, another guy burning it down, brother. Mm-hmm. So and and of course that's the the finish, and uh, then we're off the air. Yes, thankfully we we are we are off there. And speaking of off, it's like we're traveling. So now we're going to take some time and travel, travel to the past. Yeah. So what? So th- to set this up, uh, at the end of our last show, uh, we uh, somehow we we got onto the topic of Lex Luger, uh, and uh, if you're a wrestling fan, you know uh, over the past. 30 plus years, there has not been uh, a more famous, infamous, controversial figure uh, during that time period. Uh, someone who's encapsulated all of that. Um, you know, he's someone that people still, you know, kind of love to hate. Uh, 
there's a lot that people say about him. He's been through a lot. He's definitely an intriguing person, both in and out of the ring. He's had quite a redemption story for everything. Very intriguing character. And we decided, hey, let's uh, let's 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 dedicate a show to him. Uh, and so uh, once we got off the air, um, I brought up Imagine. I said, look, I said, I've got a friend who we've been saying for a while we should bring on the show. And this would be the perfect opportunity to do it. Because when I met Matt uh, back in 1990 and we started talking that more in 91, I said, hey, who's your favorite wrestler? And hands down, it was Luger at the time. He was you know, just a huge Luger fan. Um, and uh, you and I talked about E-Feds last week and fantasy wrestling and stuff. And every time he did one, uh, Luger was always the champion and headed up his own stables and, you know, all this stuff. And he was a big Luger guy. Uh, and, you know, whenever, uh, you know, we were doing backyard wrestling, he was emulating Luger and stuff like that. So um, we had, um, so I was like, Let, let's bring him in. He's the perfect guy to talk about this. Um, so we're going to go back and talk about Lawrence Wendell Full. Um, Larry or Lair to his friends, better known to the rest of the world as Lex Luger. Uh, so um, this is something I've never done before. Um, don't know that I'll ever do this again, but I spent a lot of time over the past few days. The time reading. Yes. yes reading, um, doing a lot of research. Um, now, I do spend a lot of time reading, but usually I don't dedicate myself to this type of reading. I'm um, doing a lot of research. Matt's done a lot of research in his past on this, done a lot of read the same stuff that I have, just knows a lot about Luger, especially um, during times that I wasn't watching wrestling, just being a Luger fan. So um, we're going to kind of do a deep dive into Luger because he is such a fascinating uh, just individual. Um, learned a lot about him this weekend that I didn't know. Um, some things that I didn't know. Um, and so what we'll kind of do is just kind of bring some things up, um, stop and talk about them as we go along, uh, just as it goes. Um, because there are different facets to him about his life growing up, having played professional football, his collegiate career, which is very controversial as well. Um, his, um, how he got into wrestling. Uh, there's ton talk about his wrestling career, um, certainly his post wrestling career. And there's some very uncomfortable things to talk about. I think we all know, uh, with his post wrestling career. Um, and then of course there's his redemption story, um, to get into. So, uh, we can certainly, um, start, get started in a minute. Is there anything you want to start say before we get started? Well, I just, you know, I, I, as, as far as, you know, you asked me at the beginning of this who my favorite wrestler ever is, I said Flair. But if I'm really being honest, if we if you want to nail down a point in time, 1987 through 1992 Lex Luger is my guy, for better or worse. Um, now, after that, you know, when you take whole careers into account, Flair's probably number one, but... I was never more of a fan of any particular wrestler than I was Luger during that time frame. So I'm happy to talk a little bit about him. Which is fortunate because I was never big into to Luger. Um, I never disliked him, but I was never, I was never a fan being a, a Midwesterner. Uh, you know, I wasn't watching any JCP little WCW and when Luger came to the WWF it was 
a very blah run and short lived. So I never grew to have much of appreciation uh, for Lex and, and his career. So I'm excited to hear um, from a couple people who have more of a passion for for his work and probably learn a thing or two. So, Luger is born on June 2nd, 1958 in Buffalo, New York. Uh, He has an older brother named Barry and an older sister named Barbara. Uh, Now, everyone in his family calls him Larry or Lair, except for his dad, who calls him Lawrence. Uh, His parents are music lovers. They met in college. Um, His dad was a piano player. Uh, And even though he worked a regular job, he ends up uh, taking... Uh, old pianos and refurbishing them and buying them, rebuilding them. And pretty soon he starts a piano store Hmm. uh, and actually becomes very successful and uh, has just this huge um, piano business now. And they start doing quite well for themselves. And all of the full children have jobs around the shop. And his job is to dust pianos and clean the bathrooms and vacuum. And he gets paid and with his money, he goes and he uh, buys burgers and milkshakes and Superman comics and candy with whatever he has left. And he says he's always had a sweet tooth. And he's pretty much left unsupervised and he spends most of his time running. And he knows he's fast, but he doesn't realize how fast he is until he gets to about third grade and they do the physical fitness test at school. And he sets the record for third graders and says he blows away the fourth and fifth graders as well. And it gets to be some of a uh, bragging thing. And his friends all start bragging about how great he is and how he's the fastest kid around. And he starts uh, setting goals for himself that one day he wants to be an Olympic track and field. Hmm. And then when he gets older, uh, he's going outside and he sees some kids playing basketball. And he says, hey, can I try that? Um, he's not, it doesn't make any baskets, but then starts playing pickup games and eventually joins uh, an after-school basketball league. And he starts getting taller and taller and he's better and better and he's a natural athlete. So he uh, becomes pretty good at basketball and eventually starts playing uh, for his school and goes on to play that in high school. Eventually one of his friends talks him into starting to play football his dad tells him that's not even a real sport. It's barbaric, just gladiators throwing themselves at each other. So he forges, like it. Yeah. So he forges his dad's signature uh, to get onto the team. Uh, and his mom knows about it, but his dad doesn't, even though his mom goes to his games. Um, he doesn't actually care about football, but he's just doing it to be around his friends and to have something else athletic to do. Um, he actually uh, dreams of being an NBA player. He says he's got a 38-inch vertical leap um, at six foot four. Um, he, he can put one hand over the top red line on the on the backboard, and he can dunk with two hands. But of course, that's not allowed in high school basketball. Uh, and that he wasn't serious about football, but he realizes that after he stopped growing at six foot four, he's probably not going to make it as a power forward in the NBA. So. He, uh, he is a big fan of the Buffalo Braves when they were a team. Still are just not the Braves anymore. But right. But when they were, right. Yeah. But when they were there. Um, Bob McAdoo. Right. He, Bob McAdoo was his favorite player. And so then he, uh, he ends up uh, 
his football coach tells him, well, if you were serious about playing football as you were about basketball, you would probably get into a division one school. And he says, that's the best advice he ever got. And so he starts taking football seriously. Uh, he gets a, uh, and then he starts getting looked at by all these schools, even though Buffalo was not a um, hotbed for, uh, or New York, especially upstate New York, wasn't a hotbed for, uh, you know, Division One players like, say, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, you know, or Ohio would be. But he gets courted uh, by Annapolis, uh, by Penn State, by Miami, um, and he's looking at all these schools. And what makes his decision is that Joe Paterno actually comes uh, to one of his basketball games shortly before the signing and comes over to his house for dinner. And uh, that makes a big final decision for him. So he decides to go with the Nittany Lions. And that's when his dad found out that he played football. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, uh, and uh, Joe Paterno asked his family if they want a photo op with him, and they tell him no. Smart people. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and so he, uh, so Luger says, "Well, I'll take a picture with you and uh, to ease the situation." And so, uh, now afterwards, uh, Luger gets in a bit of trouble. Um, he. Uh, one, he has a fight at school. Uh, apparently, he's out one night with some buddies, and they're and, and they're raising a little bit of cane. And there's a group of kids at school called the Motorheads. One of them uh, mounds off at Larry and says to him, says something to him. He doesn't know who did it. He finds out who did it. He goes and confronts the kid at school, grabs him by the throat, and throws him up against the wall. And says, "Hey, let's. You got a problem with me? Let's sell it after school." Uh, he's sitting in the lunchroom. The guy who's in the head of the motorheads comes up to him and says, hey, if you want to fight one of us, it's going to be me. I'll see you after school. Turns out this guy, this kid's a Golden Gloves boxer. So uh, he doesn't want to lose face, so he shows up afterwards, and now they're on this soccer field, and there's a bunch of people standing around watching him. And he's bigger than this guy, but he's worried because the guy's going to the blockster. So he just waits for his opportunity, says he tackles the guy because he's much bigger than him and he's a football player. Guy doesn't know quite how to react. So he just kind of jumps on top of him and starts pounding him until people pulls him off of him. And everybody's raising his hand. Police car shows up. They go back inside. The guy comes after him, starts to restart the fight. People start pulling apart. Teacher shows up, see the bruises on the guy's face, and they both ended up getting suspended. But... He's afraid if he gets suspended again, he's gonna get in, he's gonna get kicked. Right, exactly. Um, he also gets arrested uh, right before the graduation when him and some of his uh, fellow football teammates are uh, drinking and driving one night and decide to smash some mailboxes with uh, sledgehammers. And last house oh, that, that they're going to smash, uh, well, one of their classmates is in the is sitting in her driveway with her boyfriend, and she sees them and calls the police, and they immediately get pulled over. Um, now, smashing mailbox is federal offense; um, it's considered destruction of federal property. So he uh, actually uh, ends up getting away from that and ends up just paying a fine and getting a curfew. Uh, but misses out on graduation celebrations because he's got a nine o'clock curfew. Uh, but that wraps up his college career, or excuse me, his high school career. 
Um, and then he goes on to to Penn State. Right. So he, so he goes to Penn State, um, and he's down in Happy Valley, and uh, he enjoys the freedom there. And he's even though he's been a, an A student his whole career, now he's not studying. He's figuring out ways to cheat. He meets a woman, a girl named Peggy, who's a track star um, that he likes. And he says that even though he's been popular, he's shy around girls, but he finds her easy to talk to. And uh, they date for his whole freshman year. Uh, he, uh, his family, or his mom and dad at least, moved to Boca Raton. His brother, Barry, moves to Daytona Beach. And he starts saying, hey, you know, it might be nice. And also uh, his senior year, um, or excuse me, his freshman year, he's, of course, not playing because he's a freshman and Penn State is stacked. Uh, He gets injured and he uh, says, well, um, he's he's arguing with Coach about what position to play. They tell him, well, hey, try this position, try this position. He's playing nose tackle one day and he gets hurt. And uh, he um, he uh, ends up not only hurt but getting mono, and it miss and has to withdraw from several classes, and ends up having to take summer school to uh, complete his credits to get to keep his eligibility. And after spending time in Florida with his parents and taking summer school class down there, he says, "Hey, maybe I'd rather spend some my time in Florida." Then up in the cold in Pennsylvania. So he calls uh, Miami and says, hey, is that offer still open? And they say, yeah, but only if you come right now. Hmm. So he, he tells his coaches, tell Coach Paterno, my family moved and I want to be closer to them. And I've got a chance to go to Miami because I really miss my family. So uh, he ends up uh, basically lying as a way to um to uh to get out of his right agreement at Penn State right now the thing about it is that he um that he will um tells Peggy uh his girlfriend he hey when well, we're going to get married anyway why don't you come to Miami with me uh and then we'll just start our life together and she says, well, um, okay, that sounds great to me. And um, she and she's going to uh, go with him down there. Okay. And then she says, uh, and then she took, but the thing was, there's no um, track program for her to transfer to at that time at Miami. And so her family and her track coach talk her out of going and her and Lex decide to go. Um, decide to go long distance at that time. And, and Lex is heartbroken. Mm. And then, uh, so Lex starts playing at Miami, uh, and this is where he, uh, we get uh, kind of a very famous uh, couple of stories about Lex. He's He's really well liked at Miami. He's he starts a few games. Um, shortly into the season, um, he, he you know he plays a what or he or his first year he's he's not really playing, but next year he 
um, he because he's redshirted because right. of a transfer. So the next year he is uh, he start he's a starter. Uh, he's living in an off-campus apartment, and then he, uh, or excuse me, an on-campus apartment, and he and his roommates um, all kind of lose um, their uh, their girlfriends at the same time. Mm. And they get upset one night, and one guy uh, apparently just rips the sink out of the wall, and then um, rips the toilet out, and they just rip the shelves out, um, and uh, they uh, basically tear their entire apartment completely apart uh, in just a matter of minutes. And so, I mean, literally the place just is demolished. And there are a knocks on the door and says, "Hey, I hear the commotion. Um, I'm call- I've called the police." So while Lex is peeking to see who's at the door, they slip out their windows, and Lex thinks, "Hey, maybe this is a good idea." And he jumps out the window, and the RA basically catches him. Hmm. But he runs out. He goes to his brother's house in Daytona Beach. Um, and then the other two guys established alibis. And when the coach Saban, uh, finds out about it, he calls them in his office and they say, I'll give him their alibis and say, we don't know who did it, but we were all here and here. So he knows they're lying, but he can't prove that they're lying. So he lets it go and, uh, they get away with this trashing of an on-campus apartment causing thousands of dollars of damage. And Lex also suspects Saban doesn't want to lose three of his starters like four games into the season. So uh, then uh, another famous story comes up right after that. Lex goes to Atlanta to play Georgia Tech. His roommate throws a bucket of ice water on him on the way to the team meeting. And Lex doesn't have a change of clothes, and he's mad. So he goes and instead goes, skips the team meeting, goes to the front desk, tells him he's his, tells the front desk that he's his roommate, gets his roommate's key or duplicate of it, goes up to the room and trashes the hotel room, um, sprays water and shaving cream everywhere, and just thinks that's the end of it. When they go back to school, Coach Saban calls the two of them into his office and says, you've embarrassed us. What's worse is it's on the road. We can't have this. Thought you guys knew better. Coach Saban's putting all the heat on his roommate. And Lex thinks, well, if I just tell him what I did, Coach Saban will respect me for it. uh, And I'll be okay. And he says, no, Coach, it was me. Instead, Coach Saban says, guess what? You're off the team. Hmm. And uh, Luger is now off the Hurricanes, and he tells him, well, you can still go to school here, and I hope you'll start behaving like a respectable young man, but you can't play football here anymore. And now everybody, know, now everybody knows what Jim Ross was talking about when uh, he would always make reference to Luger's discipline problem. If you go back and look at the network and look at Luger's matches, and Jim Ross was always wanting to give the – the bio of every wrestler that's in the ring, you know, Kevin Sullivan won championships at four different weight classes and Luger always had 
He even went to Penn State and Miami and had discipline problems. So now, now you know. Yeah, Jim loved to tell your your college background. Yes, he did. Yeah. So Luger did have um, certainly had uh, a um, his discipline problems, and that was. Uh, and and that got him kicked out of Miami. Uh, well, well, he was eligible to still go to school there. Um, however, he um, uh, was too embarrassed afterwards. He says that if he couldn't uh, work out in the athlete's dressing room, and if he couldn't, um, if he couldn't, uh, you know work out or excuse me if he couldn't work out in their weight room if he couldn't eat in their cafeteria and he couldn't be around their friends and all that other stuff he was basically going to have to be a a regular um student basically and not have the same uh, benefits that he was used to having then he couldn't face life on campus so he withdraws from school moves in with his brother in daytona beach uh, word gets out to the press that one of Penn State's, or excuse me, Miami's uh, starters has been kicked off the team. Uh, they reach out to him and say what happened, and he buries Miami and Saban in the press, and therefore just absolutely uh, closes the door on his chance to ever return to Miami. Hmm. And so this is where things in Luger's uh, career get really interesting, or Luger's life. He, um, so he gets to, um, so he, he's living with his brother, and he, and he starts telling about how he, uh, for extra money before, he had, um, he had actually worked as like a door guy at a nightclub. And so he uh, decides that he wants to do that again. And so he starts working at a couple different, um, he starts working at a couple different uh, clubs. Um, and then he eventually um, settles on one. Uh, and that's where he's going to be uh, permanently. He's just going to stay at this one club. And he, and while he's there, he meets uh some interesting people uh he's making uh all kinds of tips but there's drug dealers coming in there and there's some mob people there and he even gets offered um a thousand dollars a week to house it uh for this mafioso this guy's gonna offer him a thousand dollars to house it for him sure i'll take that right now and uh uh and to um and to um and to uh, house it for him, make sure the, the 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 staff is doing their job. He's going to give him access to his cigarette boat, to his um, to his to his sports cars, and everything else. Mr. Luger was a, a full out muscle. Yeah. So he, but he, but then he realizes it's probably not the smartest thing to do. So he turns the guy down. And I don't know. I mean, the mafioso comes to me and says, I can make sure his staff does what they're supposed to do and make sure the house is all right for $1,000 a month. And that's nothing illegal. $1,000 a month or a week, I'll, I'll house it. That's cool. Let the cops raid me. I didn't do nothing wrong. 
Yeah. So he, uh, so he, you know, he, so he's basically looking at like 50 grand a year he turned down for that. Yeah. In addition to be able to keep in his regular job and working out and things like that. But he, uh, but he says stays on good terms with this guy. But I found that was really interesting that he gets offered a thousand dollars a week to house it for this mob guy. Um, yeah. While he, while he's doing that, he uh, someone reaches out to him from that he had that had been like a scout for Miami and says, "Hey, um, the Montreal Owlets, if I'm saying that correctly, yes, are um, interested." Um, uh, are looking at um, are interested in hiring you for the Canadian Football League. Do you want to come try out? And they offer him a contract, and he says, "I, I don't know because if I if I play professional football, I can't play college ball again. I'm I'm only twenty. Um, and he calls Miami and and says, "Is there any chance I can come back?" Um, and they said, "We'll ask Coach Saban." And Coach Saban sends back message and says, "Not only are you not welcome back, but." you would make a horrible professional football player. Oh, well, that's <laughs> lovely. And so um, he says, um, and so he's, um, so he signs the contract, goes to Montreal. And uh, once he gets there, he realizes they're only allowed 15 um, Americans per team. And that in his position, there's already two veterans there. And so he's a rookie. He's never played professional uh, football before and they're basically getting all the veteran Canadian players mm-hmm. and they're also getting um, like all the NFL castoffs. So he's competing for a spot and he ends up getting a spot um, and he's basically their like third linebacker. Yeah. Uh, and so well, I, I thought he was uh, thought he was a lineman. I might be wrong, but anyway, he he's okay. he's third in his position, which they they did not he didn't expect, um, and he uh, he plays one game in his preseason um, or, or last game of preseason. He's a wedge buster, and he actually hits one guy and knocks him into the ball carrier five yards back. Uh, and uh, the coaches see the film, and they say, "Well, that's not what we trained," but. It was effective. And so he um, he's put on injured reserve, and he actually ends up starting in the Grey Cup, which, if you don't know, is the CFL's version That's of the Super Bowl. Bowl. Yeah. yeah. And um, I only know that because of how I met your mother. Um, but the uh, – anyway, he, uh, he is the youngest – American to start in the CFL. Now, Jim Ross touted this a lot. He would always say he was the youngest player to start in the CFL at 19, but Luger specifies he's the youngest American to start at 20. Mm. So I'm going to go with Luger being more accurate on this one in his own book. Um, and so he plays for them for like three seasons. Um, in the third seasons, he's having some problems. Um, he's having some injuries. Um, and they want him to uh, they want him to get some rest and heal up. Uh, but since they have a limited uh, roster, they say, look, we'll put you out on waivers. We'll bring someone in to fill your spot. And then once you're healed up, we'll release that person and resign. You. Bring him back. Okay. So he says, okay. And then he realizes, wait, if they put me on waivers, I'm a free agent. 
So he calls the lawyer and the lawyer says, yeah. And then he puts out feelers to the to NFL, see if he can go to any camps. Doesn't show up to practice the next day. And they say, well, hey, where's full? And the coach say, Larry took the money and ran. <laughs> and so uh, he gets he's brought in by the Packers and of course his um, his strength his speed everything is off the charts so they assign him to uh, their practice squad um, he doesn't get along well with his position coaches his attitude of course is a problem um, but he has a season with them and he's got he injures his groin uh, and his hip flexor and so he's not able to play he still trains but uh, his position coach says he thinks he likes working out more than playing football. Comes back next season. Somebody tells him, hey, uh, you know, the USFL starting up. Tampa Bay Bandits would like you. Um, any way you can, you'd be interested in playing for them. He says, well, you know, it'd be a pay cut, but I'd be back home where I've been living in Florida. And I wouldn't be dealing with this coach and being on a practice squad instead. I could actually play, show people what I could do. He goes and shows them the tape. They say, hey, we want you. He shows them his tapes from the CFL. He gets Green Bay to release him. Mm-hmm. Now, now, here's something I kind of didn't believe in his book. He claims that the minute he gets released by the Green Bay Packers, the Buffalo Bills approach him and want to sign him. And he turns them down to go play for the Tampa Bay Bandits. Now, a practice squad guy with a groin injury that never played an NFL minute, it's doubtful. And the fact that he would choose the USFL over the Buffalo Bills when he grew up in Buffalo. Um, okay, so to that I would I would say I can understand turning down um the Bills if they did call and here's why. Um uh, the USFL changed the game when it comes to money in the NFL. Um, prior to the USFL, and we except can, he took a pay cut to go to the USFL. He said yes, but he says he took a pay cut maybe compared to what the Packers were paying him. Uh-huh. Was and if the average NFL player was not making much money back then, the USFL changed the game when it came to player contracts, which is why they signed Jim Kelly, uh, who opted for there over the NFL. Steve Young. Um, Herschel Walker, top five players going to the USFL, not the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncle won, was a Michigan Panther, won the USFL championship first year, played the USFL for three years. Knows I know a lot about the USFL. Um, so the Bills may have called. I think he would have had probably same or better money in the USFL plus being back in Florida. And even if the money was a pay cut, What's the, what's the tax situation in Florida? He probably made the same or more going to play for the USFL. Now, it just seems weird to me that, like, if your if your if your childhood team, like your team you grew up with, if your dream has always been playing the NFL, and that's what you've been training for for like years, and your childhood favorite team reaches out to you, it it just seems weird to me that you're not even going to take a sniff. I can tell you this. Um, 
in my still much younger in certain days, I had an invitation to the NFL Combine. Um, I could have gone, I could have worked out. Hopefully the Detroit Lions maybe like to put me in a practice squad. What you are, and he's, you know, he's older, starting to get a little older now. You're at a certain age. You're starting to think about your life. You know, he and Peggy, the relationship, what they're going to do. 23 at the time. Yeah, he's you know, but you know, twenty three, you know, is is a late start um, for the NFL as well, especially at his position. So he, he's got to look at his life. How successful does he really think he can be? Um, he couldn't get onto the Packers squad, and the Packers weren't exactly burning the house down at this time either. So. It sounds to me like if this is a legit thing that he did get this offer from Buffalo, it sounds like to me he made a business decision as far as what he thought he could actually do. I don't think he probably thought he had a chance to make the Buffalo squad. Um, and he went where he felt he had a better opportunity to make money, make the team and play and also be closer to home. I mean, it's, it's like if the Pistons offered me to play ball uh, for the league minimum, but the Miami Heat said we're going to pay you, you know, five million dollars to to play in Miami. Hey, I love my Pistons, but I'm going to go to Miami, get five million, and not pay a state tax. And I think I think also that um, he he came to prefer Florida to Buffalo, as as many might do. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I'm. I'm that's the way I remember reading it. Yeah, I mean, Florida's definitely better than Buffalo weather-wise and things like that. It's just hard for me to – it's just hard for me to be like – imagine not even going and having a conversation with your childhood team. You know, his family was there. You know, like all my families are in Florida right now. You know, as much as I prefer the colder climates because I'm not into being hot all the time, I have wrestled back and forth as far as, hey, do I want to try moving to Florida? I would like my kids around their grandparents and stuff. You know, my wife likes the warmer weather. Yeah, and we saw how well that post about you moving went, too. How well that went over. Oh, that's because she doesn't want to do the whole mortgage thing again, but, you know. She likes to blow a hot air as well, so you know. And plus, the fried chicken so much better down south. That's true. That is. Amen. Anyway, so uh, so anyway, so Luger uh, goes play for the Bandits, um, and he does, and he uh, again doesn't like his position coach, but he's doing really well. Um, so the coach is is basically overruled by everyone else on the team. Um, and then he uh, ends up uh, being traded eventually to Memphis um, and then does pretty well there and then gets traded to Jacksonville and then his career pretty much ends there. Now, um, he now he's now he now according to him, it's not necessarily an injury thing or whatever. Now, there's some, here's where some discrepancies come in. Now, it's often been reported that Luger got into wrestling by uh, that he met Bob Roop, um, who was a famous um, old, not old time, but older time wrestler, uh, bigger in like 70s. So, mm-hmm. um, 
at a like a program golf charity thing um and that uh or like a charity golf uh celebrity golf thing that's what i was trying to say celebrity golf thing okay um, and that root told him hey you should go train to be a pro wrestler okay luger mentions nothing about this in his book um which by the way my a lot of my source material um comes from lex luger's autobiography wrestling with the devil um and luger um Luger says that he um, um, he is um, he just says that he remembers his grandfather being a big wrestling fan and he figures that wrestling might be a good way to make some extra money so he goes to uh, Tampa where the, the CWF headquarters is mm-hmm. um, and uh he uh, he says um, he keeps going there to try to find somebody. Finally, somebody opens the door, takes a look at him, and says um, that he, uh, you know, he, the guy looks at him. And he says, "Well, you know, hey, I'm Larry Fole. I'm a professional football player, and I'm looking to make some extra money. Um, can you tell me how to get into wrestling?" and uh, the guy says, well, you know, I, I can't do anything for you, but here is the name of Hiro Matsuda. Um, he can teach you. Here's how to get in touch with him. And so he gets in touch with Hiro Matsuda, um, and he goes in, and um, and he, he gets contact with Matsuda, and he goes to this garment factory. Um, and he meets this guy who's not big, but big for, as he puts it, for a Japanese man. He's 6'1", 250 pounds. Mm-hmm. And he sees this guy, and this guy is working at a, you know, like I said, a garment factory. Or he owns a garment factory. And there's no ring. There's no mats. Um, he would just clear out some space, and he would make him do, you know, all these calisthenics and things. Um, and he would have to uh, pass basically this fitness test uh, that some people took. Uh, a year to pass. Um, for him, it took two months uh, before. Before, uh, but he says at the same time, everything he did, Matt Suda made him do. Mm. So they would start out with a five mile run every day, and then three hundred push ups. It's worth noting, uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar with Hero Matt Suda, you might remember him as the guy who accompanied Flair to the ring. Chi-Town Rumble 89, he kind of took J.J. Dillon's place after Dillon left for the WWF in early 89. And uh, as far as CWF goes, I mean, maybe we should talk for a second about that because we're in 1985, 1986 now, and it's the last, one of the last major territories and it, it was one of the bigger ones, one of the better ones over the course of uh, the the 70s and early 80s because you've got guys like Dusty Rhodes, the, the Briscoes, the Funks would, would come into Florida a lot. Uh, had a few title changes for the NWA title that happened in Florida. So this was a, a substantial territory. Uh, Eddie Graham ran it. And it was on its last legs by the time Luger – Right. starting to come around, but it's still a, a, a substantial territory. Um, Hulkamania is running wild, so the territory's days are – the writing is on the wall, but it was a big deal to be uh, given 
a chance to to make your mark in Florida still. Right. So so this is shortly after Eddie Graham has died. Um, this is right after shortly after WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania. Um, and uh, of note too is that two of the headliners for WrestleMania, Hogan and Orndorff, had been trained by Matt Suda. Right. So uh, Matt Suda is is a legendary trainer, and I didn't want to skip over that. that uh, but Matt Suda um, is legendary, and 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 Luger talks about how he would find out later how um, Matt Suda was notorious for intentionally injuring and breaking the bones of people who didn't take his training seriously um and that he didn't know that going into it um but of course he escapes unscathed um one thing i did uh skip over but it's probably important and especially when you're talking about luger is that luger says he didn't try steroids um until uh until he uh got his contract for the cfl he had always prided himself on not doing steroids um, until he gets an offer from the CFL. He says he's about, I think, 222, 220 pounds or something like that. And he realizes he's not as big as other football players. Um, and, you know, he says in the early, uh, you know, I guess it was the late 70s at that point, um, about 79 or so, it's easy to um, – basically easy to get uh steroids in a gym yeah so he just asked somebody hey what do i do and um guy says hey here's the anabol take this so much of this every day and that's what you do and he um and so that's what he uh um so he uh just goes and um starts taking it and he and the guy tells him how to eat how to um you know keep working out the way he has and you know how much of it take and when to stop taking it and you know sure enough he packs on a ton of muscle um and he says he did did it before his his season and they did it before the next season and then before the next season he does it for 12 weeks instead of eight weeks um then when he gets since wrestling when he starts wrestling since wrestling doesn't have an off season he does 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off, 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off, and that would continue basically for the rest of his career. So I, I heard, I don't know if you saw this in your research, that he and Ron Simmons were teammates um, in the USFL? He, he didn't address it directly, but they, but I've, I've heard and seen repeatedly, and I'm sure Matt knows probably about this, but I believe they played on the Tampa Bay Bandits together. Yeah, um, they played on opposite sides of the line, but they were teammates briefly. Of course, uh, everyone probably knows who's been a wrestling fan that Simmons was an All-American at Florida State. And so you got that Florida State-Miami thing going on. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they would pull out some of that football rivalry when they feuded in WCW a few years later. Cool. So, they, so, so Luger was an offensive Lyman, then okay, I thought I heard. Yeah, right. got it. Okay, yeah, and uh, Simmons was, was a nose tackle, if my memory is correct. Yes, so and Simmons would also come up through Florida for what it's worth, All right? So basically, the, the the you know, so he. Um, so when he starts training, uh, after he passes the Matsuda test, mm-hmm. uh, Matsuda, 
um, Matsuda um, gets together, uh, you know, starts finally training him in the ring, teaches him how to take bumps, how to hit the ropes. And, uh, you know, says he's really sore from that. And it's completely um, different, um, you know, type of soreness and training that he's used to. He talks about, you know, learning to hit the ropes and the blue marks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he um, and he's really um, now um, and uh, is learning to appreciate this in a different way, but now he says he's, you know, really getting hooked on this. Um, and he's not, um, icing himself down when he's getting home. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, cause he doesn't want to look weak in front of his wife. So, uh, and he has his first match against Coco Samoa and, uh, Matt Suda, who never comes to the matches, um, agrees to come and accompany him to the ring. Oh, very cool. And, and so, so his his first match would have been what in uh, NWA. It would have been in Florida and Championship Wrestling from Florida. Okay, um, which was an NWA territory when the last yes. NWA territories. Um, this would have been before Crockett bought it. Um, okay. and so this was in '85. Um, so his first appearance is actually um, he doesn't he doesn't wrestle. Um, he just comes out on TV with Rick Rude and Percy Pringle. Um, better known to most people as Paul Bear, mm-hmm. um, but they just trot him out there, and they're trying to decide um, what to call him. Um, they don't want to call him Larry Full. That's because um, it's a bad name, right? And so they're trying to come up with him, and they say, "Well, you know, is he going to be a heel? Is he going to be a face?" And so they're trying to come up with a name for him, and he says, "I don't want to get stuck with a stupid name." And so they so, said, let's, I won't well, say Vince would have done. He said, what's the name of master a gun. So he says, uh, um, he, uh, he's, so he's Colt 45. So, no, look uh, at him. Look at him. He's, he's a Luger. Well, so Luger says he came up with his name and he had been thinking about it. And he says, he says, Matsuda basically told him not to speak unless he was spoken to him. He says he raises his hand and he says, I have an idea. And they said, okay, well, give us your idea, kid. And he says that he had um, his favorite show was Magnum P.I. Magnum was a, a gun. He had been studying guns and he was of German heritage. So he thought Luger would be appropriate. And okay. being and being a a Superman fan, if he was going to be a, a, a villain, he wanted to be the ultimate villain, which of course was Lex. Right. So Lex Luger, and he said, "Well, how about Lex Luger?" And they're like, "Hey, that it's not bad. We'll just use that." And he said, "You know, they spent all this time coming up for it, and then he goes out and makes his appearance, and they don't even say his name." <laughs> yeah. So he. Uh, so he uh so then he has his match. Uh he says has this match, it's like a ten minute draw or whatever. Uh they watch a few more matches. He doesn't even wait to get paid. Him and Matt Sue to go back. They drive and talks back, you know, talk on the whole match uh back. Um and finally um uh, he just starts getting a buzz about him based off his look. Um, he can't really work. He admits he can't work. Matsuda basically told him, you don't need to be able to work. You've just got to show that body. And, you know, and so um, he, uh, so they decide to put 
uh, the Southern Championship, which was the top title in that territory, mm-hmm. uh, on him. And Wahoo McDaniel, who's the booker there, uh, is the champion. Um, okay. So uh, Flair is really big on him, and it's pretty probably well known about Flair. Flair has, uh, if Flair thinks something about someone, he's going to go and try to get him a gig with Crockett Promotions. Um, he did the same thing with Arn Anderson um, years before. Um, so he starts talking Luger up uh, to, to Crockett. Um, and uh, so Luger starts getting calls about appearing on Crockett TV. And Luger um, ends up uh, there. The, and so Luger eventually is going to be going up to Crockett. And then there's a very famous incident involving Luger, a steel cage, and one Bruiser Brody. Uh, right. Matt, do you want to field this one? Well, Luger, you know, Luger's on his way out, and the people in Florida know it. And this is weeks before he's uh, going to be making the official move. And if you if you know anything about Bruiser Brody, he was the prototypical territorial journeyman monster type and he'd work face some places he'd work hill other places but he was a legitimate tough guy and and, and he would um a couple of minutes of this uh, of brody not cooperating and luger is is still pretty green doesn't really know how to handle it i don't know if a veteran would know how to handle it either but especially luger, with brody just, yeah uh, luger just jumps the cage and, and leaves and uh, I guess Brody was there. He probably got paid by somebody to, to try to make Luger look as bad as possible on his way out. But um, that that's the story that that, that that happened. It was it's one of the more interesting uh, incidents of someone on their way out. Yeah, and no one knows exactly why Brody did it. There's video of the match that you can find. Bill Alfonso was a referee. People have asked Bill Alfonso about it. People Luger's talked about it in a shoot interview, but no one knows the reasons about it. Luger said he, you know, Alfonso said it was weird. Luger saying asked Brody about it. Afterward, and Brody just said match wasn't working for me. Is that where Hogan learned it from? So, but anyway, that 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 was that closes the, the book on him in in Florida. He was off to to Crockett into to bigger and better things. So here's where we can really get into some juicy stuff here. So, um, so at that point, um, you've got he goes to to uh, to Crockett Promotions, um, and he doesn't have a contract. He uh, just shows up, doesn't have any type of formal agreement, but he shows up and he goes on TBS and he just kind of appears uh, with the horseman on uh, as like someone who is an associate of theirs. And then, uh, and, and he says that Dusty Rhodes coins the term total package. He says, you know, you want people to know you've got, you, you want everybody to know you got the intellect, you, you got the body, uh, you you got skills. You the technician. You 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 the total package. And and so Luger says, "Huh, I like the way that sounds." And, and they instruct everybody to start calling him the total package, Lex Luger. And so, 
uh, before he makes his wrestling appearance. He says he doesn't have a, a finishing move, so they're talking around backstage, and someone suggests using a backbreaker because that'd be not only a good power move, but it would showcase his physique while using it. Mm-hmm. And someone shows him you know, how to do it, and he practices it a few times, and how it works and everything. And he, the torture uh, rack was born. Yeah. And the torture rack was born and that becomes his finisher. And Dusty says, Oh baby, I love it. I love it. That's what we're going to do. That's your move. That's the torture rack, baby. That's it. That's how we do it. So how did, how did the, how did he go from this biggest standard brack breaker to calling it the torture rack? I got to think that was Dusty's, Naming it, that sounds like something Dusty would come up with. Yeah, I don't remember um, if Wigger mentions it in the book. But, uh, you know, Dusty was always colorful and, you know, had his flaws certainly as a booker, but always had a great mind for the business. And if he could put flash on something he was going to and, to call it the human torture rack was just, mm-hmm. I thought, genius. You know, looking yeah. back, it was just a great, great name for a move. Definitely, indeed. Like, just the name itself gave it credence where if someone just looked at it, he's like, ah, that's not much. But, you know, him working it and calling it a torture rack and, you know, combined with the color of it, you know, it mm-hmm. definitely made it, definitely suspended the belief. Yeah, so, yeah, I think they, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure the whole story behind the naming of it, but, yeah, they, I mean, it, it does sound like it would be something of Dusty's, and, yeah, and it came on, and I remember uh, one of my first images of Luger, uh, and this is in his book, um, <clears throat> but they had, when he first comes in, and he, uh, and he's at, um, and he's on world championship wrestling uh and he's out with him and he's out with with dylan and they're and they're at the old interview set that had that podium there uh and and barry Wyndham comes out because they've been friends in florida and Wyndham comes and he's trying to talk about being with the horseman and he like blindsides Wyndham and he tears his shirt and he throws him through the podium uh and and i remember uh you know at the time, I was a huge, huge Wyndham fan, and so that got Luger over big as a heel with me. That was great. Uh, I, I remember those interviews like like they were yesterday with Wyndham. Wyndham would come out every couple. You know, Luger would. The first thing Luger does when he comes in is he he talks about how he wants to be a horseman, and the horsemen are like, "Well, he'll have to. We're not looking to expand. He'll have to prove it." And and Barry Wyndham's coming out during his interview time and saying. Yeah, I know this kid Luger, and uh, man, I just hope he he. You know, try to talk some sense into him, and so that that payoff was great, and it would become even greater in hindsight when you consider what would happen the next year. But um, really set the stage for for Luger to be something special, <laughs> and, and and they would put him over week after week. We don't get this anymore, but with the squash matches, he was beating George South and and whoever every week with this torture rack and just looking awesome doing it. So they, they made him out to be something special, which 
um, does not happen a whole lot anymore. But kind of like um, a, a Goldberg streak before Goldberg, as far as the, well, string, the string of wins, but, uh, but showing off, you know, the impressive physique, you know, the the, the short squash type matches. But Luger was better than Goldberg because one, he was better in ring, and two, he could talk better too. Because at the same time, when Luger came in, Luger had this wrap down pat, and I know Matt will remember this very well because Matt always liked this. Luger, from the first time he came in, he would say, he'd come in and he'd say, you know, when it's all said and done, when the storybook career of the total package is all said and done, when it's all written down, you know, and he had this whole thing and it was, and it started right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he carried that, that rap on until like 92. Mm. And he talked about the storybook career of the total package. And he started that right then. And I mean, when Goldberg first started wrestling, if you paralleled their careers, you know, he was doing like a handful of moves. Right. Luger would. I was referring to just. <clears throat> right. But I mean, but I'm just saying like this was how much better it was because he would come out and he would do things and he would talk and he knew how to talk to fans and he would do all these things. And Luger talks about how, you know, being with a horseman, one of the things that was, was, you know, when he was in Florida, he'd come out in a tank top and all this stuff, you know, and he says, oh, that was not going to work with a horseman. And he says, you know, he gets Flair to hook him up with his, with Olivia Walker, who makes his robes and ends up having to pay $5,000 to get a rope. Ooh. Out of pocket, you know. So. He wore uh, that rope for a couple of years. I, I always liked that rope. That black one and silver one. Yeah, the black and silver one. That was a great robe. Dollars, man, you better get it in a couple of years out of worth out of that thing. Good gracious. Yeah. So, and he, um, but yeah, he he, but it was, but it fit the character. Um, and so then he he gets in, and so there was some really cool things they did there where he was an associate of the horsemen. So you really got like kind of five horsemen at the time plus JJ. Yeah, I just never liked the visual of seeing five dudes hold up four fingers, but whatever. Well, because so, he wasn't really a horseman, he was an associate. So you got the original four, you got JJ, and then you got Luger. Um, and Oli, Oli was on his way out. I mean, right. It was oh. only a, a matter of a month or two before right. um, he he made his exit from the horseman. Right, because Luger came up, I think, at first in maybe late December, early January. And... Only was out by like March, I think. Yeah, definitely because they they um, they had the match him and Bubba at the, the Crock Cup, right? Which would have been in April. Yeah. So they they did the whole thing with uh, Oli and Tully, and yeah. the snot nose punk comment in the interview, and and Oli turns uh, face, but but he he wasn't there long before he his his in ring career was pretty much over except for a brief revival in early 88 and then in, in, in 1990 for a couple months. Yeah. So, yeah. So then they did some really cool things to bring Luger along. They had Luger um, team with Tully for a while and they did some uh, matches on house shows against like the rock and roll express. Hmm. Uh, and they even showed that match on one of the TV shows in Charlotte for a while, there was a syndicated show that would air on Saturday nights for like a half hour, and they would feature like one match. 
from a house show. It would be like a main event type match. Mm-hmm. So that you wouldn't see anywhere else. So it'd be like a TV title match or a tag team match from a house show or something like that. And I remember seeing this match and it was like Luger and Tully against the Rock and Roll Express. Um, and so he teamed with Tully for a while and that ended up leading them to the Crockett, going to be a team in the Crockett Cup and they ended up making the finals of the Crockett Cup. Um, <clears throat> and then started pushing him against Nikita for the U.S. title. Mm-hmm. And him and Nikita had this really long feud. I think it started in February, if I'm not mistaken, and went all the way through um, July, uh, all the way through the Great American Bash for the U.S. title. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that surprised me was Luger got the date and the city wrong in his book for his U.S. title win. Did he really? Yeah, he said <laughs> he said July eighth, and Veterans Memorial Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina, was where he won the title. Well, I was at the July eighteenth Charlotte Memorial Stadium <laughs> event a week later, and I remember being surprised to see Lex Luger introduced as the champion and Nikita Koloff the challenger because, as but you and I both t- t- yeah. yeah, they didn't air the title change on Charlotte TV till the next morning. Or the next afternoon. Yeah. July July eleventh, nineteen eighty seven in Greensboro. Yeah. uh, And the fact that that match is the fact that that match is not on the network is a travesty. They need to get some of those old uh, old tapes that you know they they need they need to get some of that old worldwide stuff because it did air on worldwide wrestling. Yeah, they need to so, get some of that on the board. So, so if, if Matt, you've big Matt, you've probably never seen this. So, there's so on Worldwide TV during the Great American Bash 1987. This is back when it was a tour, not a pay per view. Okay. Uh, in Greensboro, there was a like a super card. Okay? okay. And there was and and there were two cage matches that night. One was Luger and Nikita for the U.S. title. The other was. Uh, Rick Flair versus Jimmy Garvin for the world title. And if Flair won, he got a dream date with Precious, which is a whole other story. That was for him and Jimmy Jam Garvin? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's before Jimmy Jam. That was when he was gorgeous, Jimmy. Well, I, I know him as Jimmy Jam. But. Right. So, anyway, so uh, so at, at the finish of the match, and this was, and this was, uh, and this was really well booked. So, Luger sends Nikita into the corner. Nikita comes out with the Russian sickle. He nails Luger, but he comes too far and he hits the referee too. Okay. <clears throat> Referee's out. Nikita, Nikita covers Luger for like a 30 count. And then Nikita comes over, tries to revive the referee. While he does that, J.J. Dillon climbs up on the side of the cage, throws a chair in. Luger waffles Nikita with the chair. Nikita's out. Right. Back when chair so, shots meant something. Right. Nikita's just I mean, he's he's completely selling. Luger like props Nikita up on the ropes. I mean Nikita's just selling he's, he's out of I me, mean, he's limp. And then he comes up beside him and lifts him up using the rope you know, assistance from him, lifts him up in the torture rack. Okay. <clears throat> and then when the referee comes up, Luger's like cranking the torture rack, but Nikita's unconscious, and then the referee checks the arm three times. Mm. And then calls for the bell and Jim Ross is going the torture rack didn't do that the torture rack didn't do that dead, dead weight and Luger, Luger saying let me tell you something about that Luger and Nikita they don't get a whole lot of credit for being great sellers and great in-ring work which 
I think it's somewhat earned and somewhat not not deserved. But Nikita selling that going totally limp was fantastic. And Nikita was a good seller. It also showed Luger's strength to get him up with him. Koloff not helping him a bit. Yeah. I mean, Nikita, was, he really was dead weight. He was playing the part. And, I, you know, looking back, I always, I, I just really, that that is underrated. It's hard to get somebody up for the torture act, too. And and here and here's the thing, people say Nikita couldn't sell. Nikita, uh, there was one thing about Nikita, when he sold, he could make his head wobble like nobody else in the world. Yeah, yeah, he, no, he really could. Nobody can make their head wobble the way Nikita could. Only with Dilo Brown. No, I mean, just the way Dilo made his head wobble when he was dancing, but not when he was selling. Nikita's head would wobble when he would sell like it was about to fall off. I mean, it, it was it was insane the way it looked. And But, but Luger won the title there, and then he started a few with Dusty Rhodes. And it was interesting because that was another thing they aired on worldwide. It was a match from the Charlotte Coliseum, the old Coliseum, which is now Bojangles arena. And, um, he, and they did a dusty finish. I know shock, but, uh, referee takes a bump mm-hmm. out of the ring. Dusty dumps Luger over the top rope, okay. <laughs> slams Luger back in and pins him for the second referee. Is awarded the title. First referee comes back in and says, no, when I was outside the ring from the bump, I saw you throw Luger over the top rope. Reverses the decision. Luger hightails it out of the ring. Dusty attacks him in the dressing room and puts him to sleep. And so then Dusty Rhodes becomes obsessed with using the sleeper hold Hmm. and gets old-time wrestler Johnny Weaver, who was a color commentator at the time. To teach him the secrets of the weaver lock, the weaver lock, baby. I'm gonna put it on Lou and I'm gonna mess up his putty face. And they start feuding all through from like August to November for the for the U.S. title. Uh, and, and, the, and they get to Stark in '87 and. What's, what's what's great about that is uh, they basically recycle the Luger Koloff finish, mm-hmm. but uh, Dusty hits the old DDT back when the DDT meant something. That was is not that a DDT. DDT. That was him falling on top of Luger. Well, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that was the end of the title reign, the first one at least. Mm. And so at that point, um, and there, and here's another thing where Luger gets some things wrong uh, in his book. Uh, so Luger says that at the great at the uh, at the Buckhouse Stampede event mm-hmm. in Long Island, uh, he he that was where the horseman turned on him, and that's not accurate. Leading up to the that event, they had a bunch of Buckhouse Stampedes. And no, okay. Um, no, I was just had a very bad flashback of that terrible moving of the truck match, which you're talking about a, a bucket of stampede, not the 
Right. No, they had a bunch of, so, so basically they'd have a bunch of these come as you are battle royals and whoever jeans and whatever and right they're going at it right okay right so whoever won would get would then be able to compete in the big one at the pay-per-view which was the most nonsensical battle royal of all time by the way dustin also probably probably the most poorly promoted pay-per-view in history right this was the worst the worst uh battle royal that came along until tna came along Okay, I've, I've vaguely like remembered Dustin Rhodes winning some battle royal in jeans. Is like, is that what I'm thinking of? Or am I thinking of something? No, yeah. this, no, no, what? No, this was in '88. This was before Dustin. Okay. Yeah, but oh. it But this was. Uh, but anyway, so there's a thing where it ends up being Luger, Tully, and Arn, and JJ. Are the last four people in one of the bunkhouses? Okay. And JJ and and you know there's got to be a winner. And so JJ gets on the house mic and says, "Hey guys, I've always wanted to win one of these things. Uh, you know that put me up there with Dusty Rhodes and Big Bub and all these other guys who've won these. Hey, what do you say for the team? Why don't you let me win? And 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 they all." And Arn says, hey, high five. And he dumps himself over the top until he gives JJ a high five and he eliminates himself. And Luger's just standing there. And, and the horsemen are like, hey, high five JJ, jump over the top rope. Mm-hmm. And Luger's just standing there. And then they're like, no, high five JJ, jump over the top rope. And then Luger just like grabs JJ and dumps him over the top rope. Mm. And then the horsemen jump him and beat him down and Luger becomes babyface. Mm. Want to add to that, Matt? Yeah. Well, just a, I mean, he he doesn't just become the babyface. He he becomes the top babyface, really in, in the company for a brief time. Um, they they really set this up after Starcade with a bunch of, but because the finish didn't go according to plan, you know, Luger didn't follow the plan at Starcade. And so you could see this happening, but uh, right when 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 they turn him at the bunkhouse stampede, you you think for a for a, a little bit that they're going to put him right into a program with Flair. It didn't quite happen that way, but Dusty was still Dusty. He was still he he. The way he saw himself was that he was the top baby face, and that was mm-hmm. part of his big problem. But um, as he is starting to take a little bit of a backseat. Not well, sort of. Uh, <laughs> you, you think that, you that Luger's going to fill that void. Um, and he eventually would, but it didn't come quite as quickly as uh, it may have otherwise. All right. And if you read Luger's book, you'd think he immediately jumped into a program with Flair, but that's not how it happened either. Because they go to... Um, because first they, they push Sting um, at the clash with Flair. Mm-hmm. But it's also around this time him and Sting actually become friends. Okay. Um, and, uh, and Sting is very uh, vocal. Uh, he, when he first meets Luger, he doesn't like him. He thinks Luger's um, arrogant and self-centered. And he does not, um, doesn't think much of him as a person. 
Um, but he knows says, you know what, Luger uh, is, you know, keeping the same schedule I am, and he seems to always eat right and be in great shape. And hey, I need to do this, and he, you know, maybe this guy can help me out. And he asked him enough for Bischoff. What? You probably tanned enough that Bischoff would be satisfied. Right, right. And so he <laughs> says, this guy always has a tan. So he says, hey, uh, how do you, you know, do? He says, what do you, you know, what do you eat? How do you stay in such great shape? Uh, you know, and and Luger says, um, I eat something in peanut peanut M and M's. I forget what the first thing he says is. And, and, you know, very sarcastically and doesn't even look up and Sting walks away. But eventually they keep running into each other at the gym and at breakfast in their hotel. And so they eventually start training together and start riding together and actually become best friends and open up a gym together. Um, uh, Luger would win his uh, second title in Crockett Promotions, uh, which was... Uh, Okay, wait, skipped over something very important. While Luger was with the Horseman, he gets the first guaranteed contract. He is, he's, he's, he's out with, uh, he, he's traveling one day, uh, and he runs into Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. Just by chance, they're in the same hotel. Uh, and, you know, Vince's like, hey, you're Lex Luger, I'm Vince McMahon, blah, blah, blah. And they talk about their families for like five minutes. Says wrestling never comes up. But Jim Crockett finds out about it. Jim Crockett says, Hey, I need to get you under contract. He gives him a contract. And Luger, that, yeah. and Luger says, Hey, there's nothing in here about my compensation. And Crockett says, Well, we don't, that's not how wrestling works. We don't offer people compensation because, okay, and here's where I need to back up. If you don't know, back in the day, um, they would pay you based on where you were in the card and how much money the card took in the so if you're the main event, you know, you get – so car takes in, you know, say $100,000. Maybe a third of that goes to the boys, and, you know, people who are on the top get the most of that money, and then it trickles down. Does that make sense? That's how it works. Well, since uh, we all know that and people are listening, yes, continue. Okay. okay. So – well, I was waiting on you guys to acknowledge. So anyway, so Luger says, well, you know, so that's how they paid them. So, uh, you know, Jim Crockett says, well, you know, we, this is how we pay people. And that's how Vince paid people for years, even after that. So he, uh, Luger says, well, you know, I've, I've been a professional football player and I've signed a bunch of contracts and I never signed a contract that didn't have anything about money. And if you're wanting to have the right, it's to me and you're going to tell me I can't work anywhere else. It only seems fair that I have some type of something in there about compensation. Can be mad at him for wanting that. Right. And he says, well, what do you think's fair? And he says, well, let me talk to my lawyer and get back to you. And Crockett says, okay. And uh, so he uh, says, okay, well, I'll go talk to my lawyer. And Luger's bluffing because he doesn't have a lawyer. So he goes and gets a lawyer. There you go. And he uh, he goes back a week later and says, uh, well, I think $350,000 a year for three years should cover it. And uh, first class airfare. And uh, Jim Crockett says, well, do I have to give that to all, all the four horsemen? And uh, Luger says, thanks about it for a minute. And he says, well, because Flair already had first class airfare. 
but him and Tully and JJ and Arn had to fly coach. Mm. And then he says, well, you know, if I'm getting it, Flair's getting it, but the rest of the guys fly coach. Well, what does that say about the horseman's image if we're talking about how we're like first yeah, class? The, the first class, you know, right. Like Rick and wheeling and dealing and all that. Right. Broke to a Ford first class. Right. And then they, everybody sees him get off the plane last. So, right. and he brings that up to Crockett and Crockett says, okay, fine. I'll give you all guys first class. He says, you know, anything else you want? He says, no, that'll be it. You know? And, you know, so he says he goes out the car where his wife's waiting. And by the way, he married Peggy. Um, so he okay. says, um, so he says, uh, he goes out the car and he says, hey, we're, I just signed a, you know, $1.5 million deal. And, uh, or one, ah, five, yeah. Baby. So, so, it, it, so <laughs> he, so he, uh, so they s- celebrate and he says, you think you should ask for more? And they drive off. And, uh, so then he, uh, so he, so anyway, so as I say, he, he wins his second time with Crockett Promotions, uh, with Barry Wyndham. Uh, they defeat Tully and Arndt, win the tag titles. Um, they only hold them for about, was it two weeks or three weeks, Matt? Uh, two or three weeks. They won them. It should be noted. They won them at the first clash. You can yeah. see that on the network. Right. And this is, um, uh, this is when they, it was him and Wyndham. So they were the, with the twin towers you said before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Twin towers. Twin towers yeah. yeah. So they beat Tully and Arn and then they end up, uh, losing them back. They win them in Greensboro and they lose them in Jacksonville. Um, when Wyndham turns on Luger and, um, then joins the horseman himself. And ironically, they don't do a feud between Luger and Wyndham at the time. Hmm. Uh, but which would make sense, but Wyndham, uh, wins the recently vacated us title. And, uh, then they announced that the second class champions that now Luger is going to get a shot at flair. Um, they do a contract signing on a yacht, mm-hmm. uh, which was, which I recently rewatched that. And that angle actually wasn't that good. The contract signing on the yacht, it just didn't come off well. Why, why a yacht? Like, what, what was the purpose behind that? They were in Miami. Okay. It um, was the yacht. It was the yacht of the Chicago Blackhawks owner who was a big wrestling fan and a friend of the horseman. And I think that they just did it as a kind of like, you want to be a part of this? And he's like, yeah, it, it Johnny, uh, JT try. It, it did not come off. Well, it was Vince was always much better at, at pulling off those types of uh, displays. Yeah. It, it just, it just, it didn't work. The, what followed in the parking garage uh, worked a lot better. So they tell Luger, Hey, you just remember you got it. They announced that, Hey, Luger's going to, Face Flair at the Great American, first Great American Bash pay per view, and then they tell him, "Hey, just remember, you got to make it mm-hmm. to the pay per view." Luger, it should be noted, is wearing a white tuxedo for some reason. Why now? Why they ever decided to make white tuxedos is a completely different story. That depends um, on the party. If you go to a white party, well, this was way before Puffy. Keep that in mind, okay? So <laughs> he, so he, uh. So he goes to so he goes to the um, goes to the arena. He's supposed to get jumped by the horseman. Now this is the first time in his career he's ever supposed to get color. So he says they've agreed to have uh, JJ because he trusts JJ um, put 
put a blade on his finger and zip him real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what happens is uh, when they go to ram his head into the car, they actually ram his head into the trunk and split him wide open. Wide open. And J.J. zips him for good measure. So now he um, is split wide open and has a gig on his head. And uh, now um, he can't actually stop the bleeding. And he says when he goes into his hotel room, he has a towel wrapped around his head. And as he's walking into like this nice hotel in Miami, he's got a towel wrapped around his head. His white tuxedo is covered in blood. He can feel the blood squishing in his shoes. Like, uh, I, I know the wellness policy back then is nowhere near what it is now, but come on, like, why not, why not go to the hospital? Well, he says he, um, uh, uh, um, uh, so he says he, he goes back to his room and he calls JJ and, and says, should I go to the hospital? And JJ says, no, nah, you'll be fine. And let's all listen to JJ Dillon. <laughs> Okay. Well, remember he's he's still pretty green. This is this is. I mean, I green or not, like the guy was a collegiate athlete. The guy was a high school athlete. Like when you're hurt and you're bleeding like that, like you know, it's kind of apparent. Man, go to the hospital. Yeah. So he. Uh, so then, uh, then come then we got the Great American Bash, and then we have one of the most infamous re- angles in wrestling history. So. This angle um, infuriated me. Yeah, this. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear this now. Okay, so just for the record, if you wanted to make Matt mad from the time I met him up until like 1996 or so, all you had to do was bring up the main event of the Great American Bash 1988. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like we had this on tape. We both had this on tape. And all you had to do like to get him mad, like where he would trash his room or start throwing things, mm-hmm. is watch this tape. <laughs> uh, he's he's rubbing his head now. He took the glasses off. He's, yeah. he's getting more. I was out. a huge Luger mark. And, yeah. and, and, and I tell you what. Uh, Why don't you talk us through this? Yeah. Okay, he's, He's challenging Flair for the title, and he is—he's been built up to be the guy. And it—he's got the look. Hulk Hogan's running rampant in the WWF. I mean, he's not the champion in July of '88, but Hulkamania is running wild there, and Hulk Hogan's got the look. Now Luger's this guy, and he's got a a better physique than Hogan, and and he's challenging Flair. So it, it's all set up and. But, but remember that he's got the, the the cut from the Clash 2. Right. Long story short, he has Flair in the torture rack. But a, a couple minutes before that happens, J.J. Uh, rams him into the post, I think, mm-hmm. and supposedly cuts him open again. Yeah, zip, the, J.J. zipped him. And, and, but he's barely bleeding at all. But um, he's got Flair in the torture rack, and they make a big deal out of a couple times during the pay-per-view of, well, we're so thankful that the Maryland State Athletic Commission's here and and got Tommy Young's the referee and Luger's got Flair in the rack in the middle of the ring. And mm-hmm. this Athletic Commission guy is – saying you got to stop the fight and everyone thinks that 
that Luger is the champion. Mm. And the place just hates it when they say, because Gary Michael Capetta is, is the ring announcer, I think he was. And uh, because of the blood, they have to stop the match. And yeah, I, I see. I'm what? Uh, I'm turning 12 years old three days later. <laughs> but I was, uh, 11 year old me was not happy. And, and I, I hated that finish. I, I mean, it, it, it was great to set up a rematch if Luger would have won the rematch. Right. Of course, that never happened with Flair. That's something we can get into in a, later. But um, good angle, good to make fans mad. Mm-hmm. But there was ultimately no payoff for it. So, so here and here's the crux of it. Mm-hmm. The, the the athletic commission legitimately stopped the match, and they weren't in on it. So though the athletic commission wasn't working them, but you legit made them stop the match. Right. So here's the thing: Maryland Maryland State Athletic Commission had a hard line policy that if there was blood in a wrestling match, they would legitimately stop it. Okay. All they had to do was see blood, and they would stop the match. What? Well, so, so, so they wouldn't leave it up to the discretion of the workers or the referee by right. to do it. And they knew that. So they had Luger get color. They had him. So basically what happened was when JJ picked him up, um, if memory serves, I have to go back and watch it. He basically zipped Luger and then threw him into the post. Mm. And when Luger stands up, you've got this little trickle of blood. Okay. And there's not much, but you can see there's blood. And like right when he he comes up, you see this uh, commissioner from the Maryland State Athletic Commission stand up, and he's looking at Luger, and he's motioning Tom Young. Now, Tom Young doesn't stop, go over there right mm-hmm. then. You know, he, he waits, get in the ring, Luger hits a clothesline, hits the power slam, gets the torture rack. He's checking the flare. Like there's a, like he's signaling the submission. He goes, then he goes over to the athletic commissioner, <laughs> then calls for the bell. So it really looks like flares just submitted and he's just going over to call for the bell. Right. But that's not really the right going on. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, but really, the athletic commissioner had been trying to stop the match for like two minutes at that point. Wow. And they just didn't see him or? No, they were intentionally ignoring him until they got to the finish they were oh, okay. wanting. Yeah. I mean, it would have been less climactic if Oliver just climbed back in the ring and they were like, ding, ding, ding. Mm, I suppose. Any 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 finish would have been climactic in, in that aspect from what you just shared with me. Yeah, but but that pretty much killed Lex Luger's. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that's you. You got someone you know stopping the match for hardly anything, and they're not even really involved in the match. So yeah, that that that's a huge blow. So what that leads to is. They Dusty was hot shotting the territory. So there's a couple things that come up after that. So 
Crockett is having money issues. So Dusty's hot shotting the territory, trying to get all the money back. Trying up. to get the money back up, yeah. And if you look at the money that Crockett did in Bash eighty eight, they actually did a ton of money because you know, every night they're having uh Luger and Flair and they're having the Midnights and the Fantastics and they're having, you know, all these big matches. You know, some star studied cards, yeah. Right. But what they're not but it's not enough to pull Crockett out of debt. All right. right. So Luger knows there's problems. Mm-hmm. So he contacts Vince behind okay. uh behind Crockett's back. Mm-hmm. And he goes up to the Greenwich and he goes to Vince's house and they uh they, they yeah they and and they eat lunch together and they talk and Vince basically says look man I'd love to work with you but you know you got kind of contract things going on and we need to see how that's going to shake out now and you know he says let you know just see how it goes but I'm very confident we're going to eventually work together one day Okay. Now, Luger comes back. Now, here's where some things get interesting. Okay. Luger says that when Time, or when not Time Warner, but Turner buys them out, okay, he is no longer worried and his contract's going to be taken over. Other people, um, you know, probably most notably Jim Cornette, but other people who were part of that had guaranteed deals because Crockett mm-hmm. had given at that point a lot of people guaranteed deals. The Road Warriors, the Midnights, Flair, mm-hmm. people like that, guaranteed deals. But when they got bought out by uh by Turner, by Turner, uh-huh. they got paid pennies on the dollar. Okay. Yeah, I heard that was a bad deal. Right. You were getting because yeah. what was happening was okay, you got paid a lump sum at the end of the deal if you weren't getting paid your guarantee mm-hmm. all along. So you were getting paid most off the shows at that point. But if the shows weren't drawing what you were supposed to get paid, then you got a lump sum at the end of the year. Mm, okay. So 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 if if I if you've got a two hundred thousand dollar deal with me. But based on what the show's been drawing, I've only paid you at that point, you know, fifty thousand, or you know, say, or say at the end of the year I've paid you one hundred fifty thousand. Then I owe you a fifty thousand dollar lump check. Right. So, you know, everybody's going. Well, it's not a big deal because at the end of the year, that's where they're getting their pay per view checks and everything, and that's why they'll pay us. Mm-hmm. Well, now that Turner buys them out, they're getting forty cent on the dollar, fifty cent on the dollar, sometimes less. Luger in his book makes it sound like he got a hundred percent of his deal, which sounds okay. a bit kabukiish to me. Yeah, this is something completely believable to me. There, unless Luger was special, or you know, it's I mean, it's possible guys like That's Luger and Flair. That they didn't want to lose. Okay, I mean, guess could, could right. Okay, kept well, it a little bit. In 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 late '88, you, you got He may very well have had a deal because late '88, Flair's been around for. You know, he's been the top dog in the NWA for eight years, yeah. and at that point, you especially when Turner buys them almost immediately. 
you have people like Jim Hurd are going to come in and start thinking, well, we got to find the next guy. Right. So they very well True. may have paid Luger every cent of what and, was and, in his contract. And Hurd was very big on um, Luger and Sting, so it's possible. So that that I do recognize. So um, Matt, I, let's see if I can find this here. Um, so after that, you've got. Uh, Clash three. I'm not remembering what, if anything, Luger did at Clash three. Let me see. He was a he. He did some commentary. I think uh, like that, like in like a host position. Very mm-hmm. briefly, he didn't have any matches or any any main role at that one. They or were Clash four. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. at Clash three, they were setting up a deal where a former football player named John Ayers, who'd been the UWF commissioner in years past. Um, he was going to be a special referee for a rematch between Luger and Flair. Mm-hmm. But that just – all that happened was on the house show circuit. That didn't make it to TV, mm, okay. that match. So Luger and Flair have a bunch of house show matches where Luger's typically winning by DQ. Um, and then if you and, – and that's pretty much their run. They're going through um, all of the uh, – they're going through all of the um just the um you know one town after another coming back uh and and it's just right so they just basically um uh coming through and coming back and this all in this is to set up um Arcade 88. Um, and this becomes one of the more interesting things because um, this all comes around the time of the, the Turner purchase. Um, so Turner officially buys Jim Crockett promotions November 1st of 88. Mm-hmm. And Starcade's going to be in December. Right. And initially, a lot of the idea, keep in mind, Dusty Rhodes the booker at the time. And, and Dusty and Flair have a very contentious idea, uh, uh, relationship at the time. Okay. And so, uh, Dusty uh, wants Luger to go over, and okay. Flair wants to secure his position with a new company, and he has veto power. And of he course. Be- and he vetoes it to keep his position. And so then Dusty says, well, no, what's going to happen is this. Uh, Rick Steiner had recently turned babyface, And he says, well, what's going to happen is the horsemen are going to attack Luger. And they're going to beat him up. And he's going to surrender his title shot to Rick Steiner. Okay. And then Rick Steiner is going to beat Rick Flair at Starcade in five minutes. And he's going to become what? a world champion. Yes. This was a and, thing that actually happened. Yes. Wait, and, wait, wait. Rick Steiner? Yes. Over on Flair. Okay. I yeah. And his rationale was, being that Rick Steiner was an all-American wrestler, if Flair wouldn't go along with it, Steiner could make it happen. Okay. And, and remember, Steiner was very over in right. late 88. Yes. His face turn, he was kind of this huge. The, the idiot member of the varsity club when he turned 
he was over huge as a baby face. So, hmm. you know, I don't, it's not as far fetched as it seems looking back at it 30 years later, but, but it was, it's still far fetched. At, at, keep in mind, Steiner was booked on the show to be wrestling for the TV title. So this was quite a jump. And so he's now keep in mind. So mm-hmm. Dusty, this is a power struggle because Flair's trying to keep his position. Right. I mean, Dusty's you, trying you, to keep you, his position. You've got your stop star and your booker right. are going back and forth on creative here. Yeah. Now, now Dusty's already had some issues with the purchase because um, when Turner was doing their due diligence, mm-hmm. they interviewed different top stars and they said, well, what do you think needs to change? What needs to go on? Tony Blanchard, when they interviewed him, they said, well, you need to get rid of, he said, you need to get rid of Dusty. Dusty okay. found out about that and he demoted Tully from being on the private plane. And so, oh, petty much Dusty Rhodes. Okay. So, uh, Tully and Arn were the tag team champions and they gave their notice and said, we're going to the WWF. Where do you want the tag titles? Do you want us to drop them tonight or tomorrow? Night? So, uh, Dusty is not doing well. Uh, and as far as Turner goes, and so he says, well, I'm going to pull a power play. I'm going to put Flair in his place, mm-hmm. and I'm going to take the title off of him. So Flair immediately goes to Turner, execs, and says, hey, when it comes to the Starcade thing, is it going to be me or Dusty? And Flair wins. Mm. And now uh, Dusty's pretty much out. Also doesn't help that Dusty bladed on national TV. A the, road warrior, the Road Warriors angle, it was yeah. terrible. Yeah. Um, he had the Road Warriors attack him, take one of the spikes off their shoulder pad, and keep in mind this one, they had real spikes, yeah. and have them drive a spike in his eye. And he bladed his eye on TV. What? Yeah. That's insanity. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the... pure insanity. Now, now, look, I'm an old-school wrestling fan, and I like blood, but this was... I think Matt will back me up. This was one of the grosser angles they did on TV. Why would you... Yeah. Sicker angles. Why would you blade your eye, man? Like, literally... I mean, I'm sure he didn't blade his actual eye, but, like, literally, like, up in the eyelid area, like, he gigged himself. And no, that's way too close like, to your eye, man. Because, like, yeah, you're competing, you're tired, you're fatigued, you slip. And it literally lights out. Well, it wasn't during a match. He was like doing a promo, and then they just came out and attacked him and stuck that. But like he's well, yeah, there was like, some physicality yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was it, one. It, come, it comes across as one of the the last truly ugly blade jobs before they got a lot smarter with it. Right. In, but in, but how sick years. did? But as a kid, how sick did that look, Matt? As a twelve-year-old, I was like, "Dang!" Yeah, and <laughs> it was meant to put over, it, Yeah, it was meant to put over the Road Warriors huge as heels. They had just turned heel. Yeah, and it was meant to give Dusty some heat heading into Starcade, and so he can keep his spot near the top of the card. Um, but politically, it it backfired, and next thing you know, he's in polka dots yeah. in New York. Yeah, so. It, I, can, it, I can't picture the more where it's his heels, but continue. Yeah, so it ended up um, – so anyway, so this all leads back to Luger facing Flair in a match where basically the deck is completely stacked in Luger's favor, mm-hmm. where it's 
the disqualification rules waived. If Flair's disqualified, Flair loses the title. Okay. Um, of course, Flair cheats like a bastard the whole time. Good old um, Flair. Doesn't get caught. Um, there's a, a really wicked chair shot to Luger's knee that just sounded like a machine gun. Mm, I mean, great chair shot. Yeah, the, this chair shot when he hits Luger in the knee, it just one of those bangs. It's like yeah, yeah, and um, and then and this is still one of the funniest spots to me. So Luger gets him up in the in the torture rack. Luger's knee buckles. Flair falls on top of him. And simultaneously, proving that Flair is the greatest physicist of all time, lands with his feet on the ropes. Tommy Young is underneath Flair, <laughs> counts the three, <laughs> and he doesn't see the feet on the ropes. So, right. well, like he's literally underneath Flair, and the only way he can be underneath Flair is if Flair's feet are on the ropes, <laughs> but still counts the three. Yeah, of course, and Flair talk, gets his. Talk about another match that ticked me off, uh, ticked 12-year-old Matt off, and they sold it as that being Luger's last shot. Mm-hmm. And it would, be his last, it would be his last shot for over a year. And, um, and, yeah, and so that ends Luger's 88 with Luger in the match that should have, again, been his thing. And, here, and here's the thing, this is, this is where it became like a, a, a safe saying to get Lex Lugered. Mm, okay. That this, you know, this is where he starts to develop the reputation as a choker. Yeah. So, one, okay. I think a lot of fans thought, and I remember, you know, because at the time I was smart to the business, and I remember at Bash '88 that night before the pay per view, asking people, "What do you think is going to happen?" You know, everybody's going, "I think Luger will win it tonight, and Flair will get it back at Starcade." You know, mm-hmm. and it seemed to make sense. You know, but then learning it get, and so then everybody's going, ah, oh, well, they're just going to have Luger saying, ah, oh, I was this close, and it makes me want it that bad. And then Luger's going to win it at the big event, Starcade. And then Luger doesn't get it. Mm. Now Luger's moving back down the card. And now it's like, and, and it really, Luger was literally the golden boy. You know, he was that guy that should have been the next level. And everybody's when I mean, when we were first burst on the scene, everybody's going, he's the next Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. You, you have to look at the you have charisma, the body, right. work, everything. But now you're going, is he the next Hulk Hogan or is he more the next Paul Orndorff? Mm, the, yeah, the underachiever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that kind of wraps up like Luger's 88. And I'm thinking maybe this is where we should wrap up this edition and then we'll pick up with Lex Luger's 89 on the next episode. I, I think that's a good idea. Um, it, okay. Just to kind of put a wrap on 88. Yeah. Anybody wants to wrap on. Yeah. As 88's coming to an end, up to this point in the, the search for the next guy, Luger and, and Sting were always those two. And at this point, Luger is still viewed, in, at least in my mind, in the eyes of most fans, as a little bit ahead of Sting on that lap. That would come to change after uh, 1989. But up to this point, Luger was still viewed as the next guy, and it was just a matter of time. Right. Um, 
and he he would end up having a pretty good 89 uh, yeah. 89 maybe my favorite luger year of, of all of them yeah and okay. so um, yeah so which we'll get into in the next one but yeah luger had uh in 88 it was just uh th- there was definitely a lot of missed opportunity there uh for whatever reason and um it's one of those things where uh hindsight being 2020 there's the opportunity to make a start and even if it was short term i think they missed so much and a lot of people i know a lot of people would probably say luger wasn't ready and maybe he wasn't but to brand but but the way they went about him not being ready Mm-hmm. left him being a choker for so long. It put a, a a bad taste in people's mouths with him then. Right. Because here's sometimes Here, sometimes here's, you've got to pull the trigger on a guy even when he's not 100% ready. And, and the business was changing so much during this time. It was still primarily a house show business. And so the ability of a guy to be able to carry a match night in and night out certainly weighed into it. But uh, they 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 missed an opportunity somewhere yeah. in '88. I don't know when I would have actually put the belt on them, but mm-hmm. they they missed an opportunity there. I I would have done it at probably at the um probably at Great American Bash, but I probably would have taken it off of him at a clash. Okay. I think that I would have probably done it at Starcade, but then then you got to ask yourself is it worth losing steamboat and flares trilogy no it's then, not nothing's worth losing it, that it's not but yeah. it's just funny how these things history can change on a dime and uh that whole thing with dusty and flair and the political dust up do we get steamboat and flare if that that doesn't happen it, it's just a fantastic what if and Luger kind of gets the short end of the stick as a result of all that. Right. But, um, well, that was 89 would be a good year for him as far as what was presented on TV, at least. Right. And and ironically, Luger doesn't have any ill will towards Flair because he, he considers Flair and Matsuda to be the two people who taught him the most in the business and helped them out. And Luger doesn't really seem to care that much about titles and things like that. So, well, he, he, he didn't get into the business for a love of the business. And he, he's the first one to say that. And and I've heard him say, you know, he, he knows that he wasn't ready either. Yeah. But, uh, and, I, yeah, I, he, yeah, I can't put the title on him at, at Starcade because you lose steamboat. But I would have, I would have had, uh, I would have had, um, him, to, you know, the only, the only other analogy of it was, you know, there were a lot of people who were saying, was there the plan where then they were going to transition to, if things had gone a different way than what went with like the, the, the sale to Turner, Dusty leaving and everything else, because they were bringing Wyndham and Luger both up, were they going to transition to Luger winning the title and then feuding with Wyndham? Well, that, that's where you get into fantasy booking, and I've done right. plenty of that. But we, yeah. we don't need to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, can't, we don't have time to fantasy book. But that was uh, an amazing, just pretty much 79 to 88 into the career 
of well, fifty-eight Lexi, to eighty-eight, really, if we think about it. Yeah, career. Yeah, um, of Flexi Lexi Luger, and we will return on the next episode where we will start kick back into nineteen eighty-nine through the remainder of Luger's career. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark H, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the. Breaking Ring Rust podcast by Jig Nation. Again, I want to thank our first ever and special guest, Matt Privet, to the show. We are so thankful and grateful for you joining us. And Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank mm-hmm. you. And well, JT. And Matt will be back with us for the second part. Yes, because mm-hmm. I, I got to come back for my favorite part. Yes, mm-hmm. this is the part where things are really kick off, especially since '89. Um, as I've been a little looking on Wikipedia and such here, it looks like the 89 does prove to be a very exciting year for Lex Luger. So uh, will you join us for Lex Luger part two? And I apologize, me as the editor, that uh, one of the episodes did not update. Uh, I'll make sure that gets up there. And this episode will be out soon enough. So to all you all next time, peace.